You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our Razoo docs what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold milk plus, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. <laughs> the evening's the great time, isn't it, Alex Byrne? He's enterprising, aggressive, young, bold, vicious. He'll do. Who on earth could that be? Now it was lovely music that came to my aid. A bit of the old Ludwig van. Featuring a new documentary with Malcolm McDowell. Stanley actually assures me we'll stick the lid locks in and in 10 minutes we'll do the shot. 10 minutes for a Stanley Kubrick shot? I don't think so. Work Orange, the 40th anniversary edition. Look for it on Blu-ray. Oh, it was gorgeousness and gorgeousity made flesh. There was me, that is Mike White, and my two droogs, that is Rob St. Mary. Vidi well, little brother, vidi well. And Yaniv Edelstein. Let's get the snatching at it, you bullshit great bratchneys. 
And we are kicking off 2022 with a look at Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. Based on the 1962 book by Anthony Burgess, the film stars Malcolm McDowell as Alex DeLarge, a teenager, question mark, in the squalor of a futuristic London where there ain't no law and order. He's a juvenile delinquent who eventually gets pinched for his crimes. While in prison, he undergoes an experimental treatment that removes his free will but will put him on the path of the straight and narrow, only to find that all those he stepped on on his path to incarceration remember him and not too fondly. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen A Clockwork Orange, just turn off the podcast, go watch the movie, and come on back after you have. So, Rob, I seem to remember you have um, a pretty memorable first-time watching experience with this film. This is one of those movies that I like to call children's programming, and I mean that because it literally was children's programming. See, in 1971, my father was in basic training in Fort Benning, Georgia. And when he was in basic training, he saw two movies before he shipped out to Vietnam that really had an impact on him. One was Watermelon Man, which we've done on the show, and the other was Clockwork Orange. And the day that we got our VCR, he was like, I need to watch these two movies again. So they were the first two movies that we got from the video store. And I believe I was either nine or 10 at the time. I was given a, uh, a double feature. A fruit-based double feature. I had not put that uh, together until now. You were probably expecting something about fruit as a kid. Also to keep in mind, around this time was when I also saw RoboCop for the first time. So I saw that at that a That was house. the movie that scarred me as a nine-year-old. So these two movies were what I had seen. Now, um, I think I've talked about this on, on the show before, Mike. My run-in with cinema as a kid led to when I was six, seeing Temple of Doom and freaking out at the uh, the cult scene where they pull the guy's heart out. I screamed my head off in the theater, to which my mom grabbed me and, you know, basically continued to tell me, it's okay. To avoid fainting, keep repeating to yourself, it's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. We didn't leave. We actually continued to watch that movie. And then afterwards, uh, went to the library and she showed me this book on, you know, makeup effects and all this. From a very young age, I think my parents were extremely inappropriate, probably by modern standards of uh, what you show to, uh, you know, kids in their single digit years. But I think overall, <laughs> because I was given this early education, uh, through movies like Clockwork Orange and Watermelon Man, I think it built something into me uh, in terms of the themes that are in both of those films. I've got to listen to the Waterman, Watermelon Man episode for that one. But it's always been a film that I've gone back to so many times. It's it's one that is so sort of, you know, I guess a part of me because, um, you know, maybe kids have nostalgia for seeing the Little Mermaid or something. Uh, this is one of those movies uh, for me. Was it the kind of thing where you? Ha- it was the only two tapes you had at home, so that's what you had to watch again and again? These were the first two movies we saw when we got our VCR. So uh, we didn't actually own anything at that time. Eventually, it became around that time where we started buying tapes. And I'd have to say the movies that I watched kind of on a loop when I was young was um, Airplane and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And uh, Indiana Jones, so Raiders and Temple of Doom. So I think those are probably about the four the four movies uh, 
that we had that I kind of watched on a loop quite a bit. So I guess my parents were a tiny bit like more responsible than Rob's, but because um, I grew up with uh, siblings who were 10 plus years older. So that, they were teenagers when I was like, you know, a kid. And uh, they kept talking about Kubrick movies a lot and, and the Clockwork Orange a lot. But I only saw it, I think, a bit later when it was probably about 15 or something, uh, slightly more appropriate age. But I do remember when I was a kid and they were talking about it around sort of the lunch or dinner table with my dad, who had also seen it. And I remember my dad saying, that's so scary that that could happen in real life in the future. And so I didn't know what they were talking about, but I sort of filed it away for future reference because this was such a famous movie with, with an aura of danger and violence and stuff around it. Being emotionally scarred, being too young to see Robocop in the theater and, and seeing all that blood and stuff. I, I was very traumatized for a few years there as an early teen, and I really wanted to hold off, and I only saw it when it was more appropriate. But yeah, all of Kubrick's movies always had such a, you know, always such a thing that everybody's talking about. Um, actually, I was wondering, Mike, why you, why you chose it? Because it's like relatively a mainstream choice for this podcast. So is it something that somebody uh, selected? It is. It is. We uh, had a request from Melvin Sherman uh, a few months ago to cover this film. And he was, he was like, okay, you know, I paid my $20. It's like, I want it now. And like, I want a movie a month. You know, every time I pay $20, I want to select a movie. And I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not how it works. <laughs> Podcast. Who knew? Podcast jukebox. Oh, okay. Yeah. I am not a clockwork orange. You don't Maybe just you put it in the corner. Maybe you could introduce a jukebox tier. Like a $2,000 jukebox tier. That would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, for the kids, the kids love this stuff. So we got to talk about that. There's, there's so many, you know, YouTube videos talking about this film and I, I knew the kids would love it. You got to talk about clock records. Kids are just clamoring for this. Yeah. It's only 50 years old. That's all. Come on. Yeah. We are recording this right after the 50th anniversary of its release. That's why I had to put the spoiler warning out because not everybody might have seen it because it's just so new and fresh in everyone's minds. So just like talking about, you know, the, the spoilers from No Way Home or The Matrix Resurrections. I don't even remember the first time I saw this. I remember watching it quite a bit. I don't know if they would have shown it on cable or if I rented it from Blockbuster or what it was, but... I do remember watching this a lot as a kid, probably in that 15, 16, 17 year range. It's not a sexy movie. It's not like you're recording Hard Ticket to Hawaii or something and watching that for titillation. There's a lot of boobs in the movie, but it's not a very sexy movie. It was more, there's that dark humor to it that I really enjoyed. And then also the narration is what really appealed to me and then just the performances and man oh man did this movie made me fall in love with malcolm mcdowell hard he was just so great in it and to have this sandwich between if and oh lucky man and we talked about those last year yeah last year man oh man what a a, a terrific run for this guy and I know that when we talked about Old Lucky Man, that there are a lot of things that I found kind of called back to A Clockwork Orange. And then even the use of some of the actors that you've got the guy that played Dim, you've got Philip Stone in there. So it is an interesting companion piece. And I would recommend if people like Clockwork Orange to definitely check out Old Lucky Man. Even if you don't like a, a Clockwork Orange, check out Old Lucky Man, because it is one hell of a movie as well. This film 
really gets its hooks into even rewatching it again for the show. I had really just kind of memorized it. There were so many things where even just pieces of dialogue, especially the dialogue just comes back because it's, it's very poetic and I really enjoy the use of the NADSAC, the other language that was created for this. And even going back and listening to the book, it's very interesting the difference between, and I'm not even talking about the, the actual story beats between the book and the film, but to listen to the book, and I tried to read the book a long, long time ago and just could not stay with it because of the NADSAC, but to listen to it and just to get things contextually that way, but then to actually see those images, I mean, I can really see why this was such a disturbing film because you read those things and you have that protection of your own imagination versus seeing them on screen and having that presented without having to interpret it through your own mind. I can see why a lot of people found this film to be so disturbing. And plus, as Alex says, it's funny how the colors of the real world only seem really real when you video them on a screen. First of all, the violence is the central thing of the movie. It's a movie about violence. It's not a movie with violence around the margins. And one minute in, there's, there's ultra-violence happening. So it's very shocking just in the context of the film itself. As I wrote in my notes, there's two rapes in the first 15 minutes. And one is kind of played for more comic effect, the casino one, where you have the two gangs meet up, where they're like, you know, she's running back and forth and they're taking her clothes off. That is stylized and, and done in almost a humorous manner. But the other one is much more brutal. And especially with the use of, uh, you know, the whole singing in the rain bit adds this extra layer onto it that's even more disturbing. I'm trying to think back to being nine years old and actually watching that unfold before me. I don't remember that uh, to a certain extent. I just remember seeing this film as, as a package. I, I don't remember anything like kind of thinking back on it in that way. Like there wasn't a scene or particular scenes that kind of stuck out to me when I was that young when I saw it. You must have blocked it out. I can only imagine. It's a lot to take in also to just back up to the point on the sexual assaults as a sexual assault survivor. Uh, I don't, I've got my own uh, take on these things, but one of the things that, um, and I'm sure we'll get into it in terms of the reaction to the film is that the brutality um, is not, it, it's not fun. It's not like, like I've talked about with uh, the films of uh, Fukuzaku. It's a, it's, it's done in a manner to, to make you feel the weight, you know, Kubrick wants you to feel the weight of this stuff. And as a matter of fact, there we can talk about the differences between uh, the violence and sex here versus, you know, uh, the book. And um, there's things that he actually does in here, which is understandable because of the, the manner in which film is that in the book, he's even more irredeemable. He's even worse. Kubrick actually lightens him a bit so that he can even be a character that we would even follow because he's so, so dastardly. And this is, this is probably the first film that had a kind of explicit, sexual violence in that way. I can't, I, I can't think of any before 1971. I mean, your exploitation films, possibly your nasties, your, um, what do they call those? The, uh, the roughies, those kind of things. But yeah, as far as mainstream being released, you know, in a big hoopla and by such a well-known director. Yeah, I don't think so. And being seen as a negative thing, because I, I, it takes me to, was it High Plains Drifter, the one, the Clint Eastwood, where he's a total rapist, but he's the protagonist, and it's, and it's, and it's just fine that he's a rapist. 
that woman deserved to be raped, according to the movie. Twice, apparently, because she's raped and then she's raped, raped again and she secretly loves it. But I guess, but that's like a mainstream movie, so we don't question Clint Eastwood, yeah. There's many times within cinema history where I'm like, man, I would love to just be in the room. The place that I would love to be in the room in 1971 is in the um, the studios and especially the publicity department at Warner Brothers when it comes to how the hell do we sell the devils and how the hell do we sell Clockwork Orange? Because to me, something was going on over at Warner Brothers around 1970 where they go, yeah, sounds good. The devils. Sure. Clockwork Orange. Why not? This movie grabs you from the very first frame, from the those incredible credits. I love the use of the fields of blue and orange and just having that splash you in the eye from the beginning. And then that great shot of Alex and that incredible pullback. And I do love that he is pretty much toasting the audience. You know, he's looking at us, looking at the camera and raises his glass of milk this movie is set in the future, but it's not very futuristic. I think the the most futuristic that you're getting is the Corova milk bar. And otherwise, you know, it's, it's not like we're, we've got laser players and, and, you know, like maybe the car is interesting, but like it, this isn't some sort of wonderful future. And I love this whole idea too, when the, uh, when they, they meet the tramp and the tramp's talking about, you know, man on that moon and men spinning around the earth and there's not no attention paid to earthly law and or no more. Having Kubrick's previous film be 2001, a space odyssey. I'm like, is this the earth that Haywood Floyd just left? You know, is, is this contemporary to 2001? We've got that beautiful utopian, you know, we're going out into space. We're calling our, our daughter on the, the phone and, and, uh, you know, promising her a bush baby, these kind of things. Is that what's going on on earth? Is that Alex and his droogs are out there raping and torturing people and going out on these night raids every single night. It feels like these two things live in the same world or the same solar system, I should say. It has that realistic sci-fi, which you have to go back probably five or six years before this, and which we've done on the show, Alphaville, where like Alphaville's science fiction, but really it's just, you know, voiceover and flashing lights. I mean, it's contemporary in that way. So Really, the only thing, as you were saying, that kind of sets it off is that. And then the brutalism, and I don't mean brutalism in terms of the brutality that Alex and the Drugs uh, measure out, and then the state to a certain extent, but the like the flat blocks, the real heavy concrete and things like that. It's just this sort of feeling of industrial factory. Uh, even the classical music is all pushed through a machine, which the whole Wendy Carlos work uh, adds this extra layer to that in terms of this um, factory, this industrialization. I, I think maybe that's another reason why it kind of connects with me being from here is that, you know, Detroit throughout my entire lifetime has always been in decline. It's always been factories and it's things falling apart. So I could very easily look around and go, that probably could have taken place here. Very much that, uh, as you and Eve mentioned, it's, uh, you know, RoboCop. It definitely plays into the decline of Detroit. And then 
I think uh, Verhoeven used some of the brutalist architecture of Mexico uh, when he did uh, Total Recall. So it's that same kind of idea where you find the buildings that fit. And so you've got, yeah, those council flats. You've got the uh, the building that they come out of, which is uh, around the time that he uh, undergoes the Ludovico technique. Got that incredible Panopticon prison, which I know is a much more older prison, but it just plays, it's like the perfect Panopticon. I'm like, okay, this is great. Yeah. And there are other buildings where it's like, okay, yeah, I can see this. And then, yeah, to see, you mentioned the, uh, the arcade scene, just how filthy that is. And I do love that the, this movie, it's sorry to kind of jump around, but this movie, I love the, the structure of it that we have. It's, kind of reminds me of the Magnificent Ambersons, where you've got the Ascent and then the Descent. And you've got all of the callbacks from the Ascent to the Descent, even to the point of, you know, Billy Boy and his droogs up on stage, raping that girl, and it's all under a spotlight. And then you're going to get Alex when he gets revealed as being that perfect Christian. And I do love that the uh, the Minister of Interior calls him the perfect Christian. He will be your true Christian Ready to turn the other cheek. Ready to be crucified rather than crucify. Sick to the very heart of the thought even of killing a fly. Reclamation. Joy before the angels of God. The point is that it works. He's there with the guy who's assaulting him and then the naked woman. And they're on a stage under a spotlight. And it's such a nice callback. And you get those throughout the entire thing. It's not just that, okay, the tramp is going to come back, that the droogs are going to come back, but that it is this whole idea of even some of these settings and themes are going to come back from one side to the other. That there's a a point in the middle where all of a sudden the world shifts and Alex goes from being a bad boy to the ultimate good boy to that Christian who's going to turn that other cheek. And then you get to see just how all those people want to give him his comeuppance. I'm really feeling it because I really just finished watching, rewatching it a couple of hours ago. And it's just so palpable. And so, um, because it's a movie where you really can't identify with anybody or any force in the movie. Of course, it starts and you want to hate this guy and you can't really hate him. Then forces rise up against him to contain him and, and incarcerate him and then brainwash him. But, but they're odious and you can't stand them either. Then he uh, gets, and of course he's get, he gets used for political purposes by completely uninterested, soulless, psychopathic political forces. And then another force rises up against the people who are using him for political gain. And they're awful too. They're horrible. The liberals, presumably it's a, it's a Tory politician. And the people rising against him are trying to fight the, the potential rise of totalitarianism. So you're like, okay, they're the good guys, but they're, they treat him possibly worst, worst of all. And, and the, the final nail for us as a viewer is at the end, because for a while there, he gets brainwashed and at least he, he doesn't have uh, more, he doesn't have the freedom to choose. Yes, but at least he won't rape anybody anymore. But even that uh, wears off somehow. And at the end, he's just as bad as he was at the beginning. And hasn't learned anything. Of course, this is where the final 21st chapter of the book comes in, which wasn't included in Kubrick's uh, screenplay. So much of this film takes place in Alex's head. Whether it is the brain salad surgery that they're going to do towards the end when he's talking about like, oh, I had all these dreams that people were knocking around to me Gulliver. 
but that we see his fantasies. We see that very final fantasy. We see the fantasies when he's reading the Bible. We're with him seeing his own fantasies, but then we're hearing his voice. And I think that having the voiceover is, oh my God, I can't even imagine this film without the voiceover. It would just fail completely. No matter how charismatic McDowell is, without his it's he's almost purring to us the way that he gives us this voiceover and the way that he is making us complicit in his crimes, the whole, you know, Oh, my brothers, you know, your faithful narrator was being tortured. Just all of these horrible things are happening to me. He just plays yeah, the victim. And we're his only friends, his only faithful friends. And we're the ones that are going with him on this trip and undergoing all of these horrible things with him. Do we like to see the old, uh, you know, I can't remember the word that he uses for blood splashing. You know, he sure enjoys it. And I think he wants us to enjoy it as well. The red, red vino on tap, which, of course, is another uh, call to when he's served the wine at the table. So there's all of this stuff. It's interesting when you look at it from the symbolic standpoint, as Yaniv says, you know, he wants to make us complicit. He's like, look at what I'm doing and I'm going to make you watch it with me is there's a lot of eye symbolism, as you were talking about. You know, there's the thing with the eyelash, and, you know, it basically starts on this close-up of his face and pulls out, and he doesn't blink. He doesn't blink that whole time. They look like statues to a certain extent when they're in the milk bar. And then on his cufflinks, he actually has, like, these eyes on his cufflinks. There's a lot of different symbolism through here, but the the one that really, like you had talked about earlier, the the boobs in that, you know, I mean, there is a lot of nudity, obviously. Uh, there's the symbolism of milk, uh, the idea of mother's milk when you use that term. Oh, well, that's mother's milk. You know, that's the thing that you were raised on, right? The one that kind of sticks out to me, and it's so in your face in the um, in the murder scene when he kills the the lady who has way too many cats. Like, I've had two cats in my life, and I really couldn't live with two dozen like that lady. I just think, you know, where are all the litter boxes here? And then I watch that, and I go, I wonder who wrangled all those cats. I really love cats. I just want to hug all of them, but I can't, because that's crazy. I can't hug every cat. But I just want to. I want to. But anyway, when he kills her, he kills her with that uh, sculpture of the penis. And to me, the entire film really is about... This there's almost this emasculation thing in it. When he's at his fullest, he is sexy and virile and everything that is supposed to be this hyper masculine thing. And when all of that is taken away, it's like that's been castrated. And of course, how do we know that he's cured? There's the joke about, you know, one of my favorite lines where she's going through the oh it's just some things you know tell me what the dialogue says uh no time for the old in and out love i've just come to read the meter and then of course that final shot that's in the film of him and the woman which to me doesn't seem like rape it seems consensual but it's all of these people in victorian dress watching them what he's saying in that final shot when i look at that final shot and i put it through this thing of like sex and violence being tied together very much so throughout this film is that society for all that you hate, for all that you hate this, you want to watch, you want to cheer him on. You get off on this as much as he does. He's basically kind of making us complicit in the crime to a certain extent. 
making us complicit in this violence and in this aberrant sexuality. Basically, you're so uptight and you're so restricted that you can only get off on this deviancy. That's just kind of what I'm getting. The other thing that, that ties into it is also, I, could, I was so struck by how throughout the movie, Alex is, I think he's the only, yeah, he's the only character in the movie who is creative and he is also an appreciator of art. First of all, he's very creative in his violence. He kills and rapes people, but he does it with such style, it's, which is undeniable. But even just the fact that he appreciates music and he truly, it's the only one thing that he truly loves, but he has, a, has an appreciation for it. That's the thing that makes you identify with him most is his artistic flair, both in his musical taste and in his turns of phrase and all that. That's part of what makes you identify with him in the second half is you don't want a person who knows what art and beauty is, even in such a twisted way, to be cut down like that. And you have to grapple with that as a viewer, not just as a viewer of violence, but as a person who's here to see a work of art ostensibly and really ask some questions about your First of all, your choice of entertainment for tonight, but hopefully about what does it mean to consume art, et cetera, et cetera. We also understand that he has a line and you don't cross that line. Like in a lot of ways, he kind of reminds me of like a proto um, Hannibal Lecter. And this kind of comes out when they're in the milk bar and Dim makes fun of the woman singing the ninth. He doesn't turn and look at him. He just whacks him with his cane. And then talks about manners. It was a bit from the glorious ninth by Ludwig van. What did you do that for? For being a bastard with no manners. I'm not a duke of an idea how to comport yourself public-wise, oh my brother. I don't like you should do what you've done. And I'm not your brother no more and wouldn't want to be. There's a line, you fucking cross it, I'm going to eat your face. He's very specific in that way, even with his own, with his own crew, which, of course, becomes his downfall to a certain extent. But, but I love that it's like even the most chaotic, awful, horrible person by objective standards, even they have standards. Talking about the music, I do appreciate, too, that... Well, in the book, he doesn't just like Beethoven. He likes a lot of other people. He likes Handel. He likes Rachmaninoff, all these different artists. When we are inside of his fantasies, whether it's him whipping Christ or him eating grapes or killing people, the classical music comes through in that. And I think that that's actually in his brain. When he is doing those things, I think that that music is let's say, diegetic to the inside of Alex's brain. I really appreciate that he likes music so much, but then when you think about it, it's almost like Kubrick is, or Burgess is, taking the old juvenile delinquent films and flipping them on their head. So rather than this being, you know, the guy who really likes rock and roll, the funny thing is that he likes classical music and that he likes classical music better than anything else. You know, the, the two girls at the record store, they're talking about these modern bands, you know, Johnny Zhivago and Heaven 17. And I think there's one where they uh, talk about Gogol, but no, he's the one who, you know, uh, take him back to his flat with his incredible speaker system and he'll play 
the William Tell Overture while he fucks them for hours, apparently. At least 28 minutes is what it took them to shoot that scene and then condense it down with the, you know, the, the, to undercrank it and give us that fast motion. I love that he loves classical music. I love that that's what fuels it. And then I love how we go back to, there was a really good article I read where they've mapped out where all the music is. And again, how that kind of comes back through different parts and really that, that opening theme, the, what is it? The dirge for the funeral of, of Queen Mary, like that, that really even more than the ninth is Alex's theme. Cause we just keep coming back to it. And I think he's even whistling that when he's going to the council flats. And I love that it goes from the Wendy Carlos music right to him whistling and he basically picks it up. So again, it's almost like the soundtrack is in his head and he is just like, Oh, I hear this music now and I'm going to start to whistle to it. Bedways is right ways now. So best we go home ways and get a bit of spatchka. Right, right? Right, right. Right, right. Where I lived was with my dad and mum in municipal flat block 18A, Linear North. I don't know if it's still the case because we don't have someone from there uh, on the show this week. I'm going to kind of tell you this sideways story that I think relates to this classical music and and the interest in classical music. The way he explains the people that come in, he calls them sophistos, sophistos from the TV studio around the corner. My grandfather was born in 1922 in Aberdeen, which was a shipbuilding uh, capital uh, city in, uh, in Scotland. And so during the war, he was in the uh, British Merchant Navy, and he used to take a wind-up Victrola and his opera records, his 78s, on the ship with him. So during World War II, and I'm still doing some research, he was either sent twice or three times by the Germans and survived. One of the things he was always upset about was losing these records, because obviously during the war, they were hard to replace. But I thought about him in the 1940s, and this would have been the era of big band music. He wasn't interested. My my grandfather wasn't interested in that stuff. Now, granted, he died when I was two and a half years old, so I didn't know him well enough. But my mother would tell me, oh, he, you know, he was a reader. He was an intellectual. He, you know, was a second engineer. He fixed the marine engines and these, you know, tankers and freighters and things like that. So I think for a working class set of people from England, maybe even up into this period, and especially Burgess, because Burgess would have been around the same age as my grandfather, classical music had this import. That is striving. That is what you strive to. You, you should strive to understand these things. You should strive to understand classical literature and classical music. And that is what an educated person does. Even though you may be born working class and you may stay working class your entire life based on sort of the caste system in the UK you can at least cultivate these pursuits of the sophistos. And I think there's part of that uh, with Alex that he's not interested in slumming in the art of the working class. He's interested in this higher plane of uh, intellectual pursuit, even though his most base instincts are the most base instincts there are, which is violence and sex and all of these things that drive him in that way. And he finds fun and entertainment in that. So obviously the art is not elevating him in that way. Looking at it through that lens of sort of class within the UK, I think gives us an idea of why he would be so interested in the classical music. 
just the thought I had while you were talking, I was just looking at how old uh, Burgess was when he wrote it. He was just in his mid-40s and just before the birth of his first uh, son, his first child. And I went back and read the 21st chapter just to sort of fill out the story. And apparently uh, I learned from the interview with his biographer that uh, it's kind of weird that Burgess apparently wrote this 21st chapter, but in a weird case of sort of indecision by an author, he sort of left it up to the publishers to decide whether or not to include this one. Apparently that's what it did. Later he protested that they, they omitted it and he was always against it, but apparently he couldn't decide himself. But the 21st chapter is about him. It's about Alex um, for the first time turning 18, the, the ripe age of 18 after all his adventures. And for the first time, sort of not being so interested in ultraviolence and the old and out and having thoughts about uh, fathering a son. Like that's the thing he goes to and he, he sets about finding the woman to be the mother to this son that he wants to have. And he also says in the last chapter, uh, Burgess does, about how Burgess or Alex, depends who how you read it, uh, that probably my son, when he's older, he'll want to go out and do ultraviolence and I'll be his I'll be powerless to stop him doing that. And then his son again, and so and so on and on. And another thing that he does in the last chapter is that he gives very literal meaning to Clockwork Orange. He doesn't. So up until episode 20, I guess it's up to you to how, how you interpret the title. But then Burgess goes out and he just tells you exactly what it is. He says being young is like being a, a, a spoiler alert for the book. If you're being young is, is like being a tin toy, a clockwork toy going straight in line and bumping into things and mindless. And uh, then he's, I, I believe he says, um, the violence, the cycle of violence is going to continue on and on throughout the ages, round and round, like an orange in God's hands. Of course, he does it in NADSAT, but that's the gist of it. So sort of two poles of what clockwork means, what orange means, and what being human means, I suppose. For years and years, I always thought that because of the NADSAT, trying to make your way through that, reading reading the actual book is very difficult. And I always thought that it really wasn't orange. I thought it was orang, so that it was like short for orangutan. So I thought, oh, this is just a mispronunciation of orangutan. But orang means human in Malay, human being. And uh, and to, yeah, that's what orangutan means orange person or red person. But orang is the person part of that. And Burgess was fluent in Malay, learned Malay, translated into Malay. So maybe that's, but, but if you, but when they asked him, he said, no, it's a Cockney expression that I heard on the tube. But then again, something new, else new that I learned is that you can't trust anything Burgess says because he's like one of these people who reinvented himself, uh, was a trickster, was, uh, made it, made it a point to contradict himself and not keep the same opinion. He wanted to be like a, a bit of an agent of chaos, which is interesting in the context of Alex. Also, I was a bit reminded of uh, Heath Ledger's Joker a little bit when you watch this senseless violence with no reason. And yeah, your brain goes there as what is the other, what is another cinematic epitome of just being an agent of chaos and watching the world burn for uh, just because you want to watch the world burn, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it must have been some kind of uh, side to Burgess's personality, which who, by the way, was born John Wilson, which I also didn't know. He wasn't Anthony Burgess at all. And another thing I just realized is that uh, pausing the movie to have a close look at the newspapers, Alex's name in the movie is Alex Burgess. And uh, if I remember correctly, in the book itself, at some point, 
He's just referred to as Alex with no last name. But once, I think when he's picking up the two girls or at some point he says Alex the large, I think T-H-E large. And so somehow they took that and, and sort of turned it into the way his name is said in the film. But in the newspapers, if you pause it, it's Alex Burgess. When he checks in at the prison, they ask him what his name is, and he says Alexander DeLarge, which there's some, I guess, I mean, my middle name is is Alexander. Actually, my grandfather, who I told you about, his name was Alex. I, I guess maybe I have an affinity on the name. But the uh, DeLarge, there was this, I, I remember someone saying, oh, Alexander the Great. But again, DeLarge, not great, large, again, phallic, I'm big, you know. I have to tell you something else I found out pausing the movie uh, in 2160p to see the details in the papers. Are you aware of this thing? Marty Feldman's wife banned. Did you notice that? (laughs) No. Oh, funny. I I didn't Google it. I don't know what it's about. But the Sun, the one, the the newspaper that gets a big close up of the front page, the smallest item at the bottom is Marty Feldman's wife banned. And you can sort of read it. It says Loretta which is the name of Marty Feldman's actual wife, fined and banned for some kind of driving accident. So weird, Marty Feldman's wife. So maybe that's an in-joke, but then, so we need to Google this. Uh, maybe I'll Google it while somebody else is talking, if you don't mind. I'll multitask. Talking about that 21st chapter, and we can definitely talk about that as we go along, I found it very fascinating that he meets, I think he meets Billy, his other Droog, who isn't Billy, because that's Billy Boy, he meets his other Droog because Georgie dies in the book. And then it's actually Dim and Billy Boy that are the two cops in the book that beat him up. And so it's his his other Droog, the one that we really don't get a whole lot of in the movie, and he's pretty darn quiet. He is married now and has been married for a little bit, and his wife laughs a little bit at Alex because Alex is still using the NADSAT and he's like, and she's like, Oh, you used to talk like that. Okay. You know, that's funny. And it's almost like Alex can't not speak the NADSAT in the book. Whereas in the movie, I found it interesting that he can switch. He can code switch. So when he's talking to PR deltoid, he can change what he's talking about and translate it though. He wants to fall back in there. He wants to call his head, the Gulliver, but he can talk in a more proper English way and, and rather than reveling in, you know, the new small talk. What are you sniggering at? It's the new small talk. <laughs> you do it so awfully well. Well, if I was doing it proper, what was you sniggering at? Which I, I found to be very interesting that he can make that switch. He can sound better. And because, of course, like his language is very flowery, you know, the whole clear as an azure sky on a cloudless day type of thing, clear as an unmuddied lake, those type of things. But he chooses to speak in the NADSAT whenever he possibly can. And the NADSAT, I keep going back to how confusing it is in the book. It's so much different when you're reading it versus when you hear it. It's kind of, it reminds me a little bit of train spotting where if I hear the guys saying the stuff, 
great. But to read it, to, I mean, God, even going back to fucking, um, Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn, to read some of the stuff that they're saying is nearly impossible. To hear it? Okay, great. I have the context. I can figure out what they're saying. But when you read about King Solomon cutting a child in half and you're like, what the fuck is he saying? And then you see it and you hear it on screen. Okay, now I know what you're saying. But to read that C-H-I-L-E, I'm like, is he cutting a chili in half? What's going on here? I remember the version that I read, I think when I was in high school, had a glossary in the back. I think they had done it at a glossary in the American edition. In a lot of ways, I had to tackle this, I think the first time I read it, much like when we did train spotting on the show, I talked about this as well. Although train spotting, I had a way in because obviously I knew Scottish slang and, and diction from my family, but I had never seen it written down. So what I had to do with that was just read it out loud the first couple of chapters so that my ear could hear it, not just looking at it. And once I got it, I go, ah, okay. And then the context also helped as well. So uh, that was the key for me. I mean, I didn't, I didn't feel as hung up on the reading of the book. In some ways, I mean, there's a lot of discussion around kind of Cockney rhyming slang, which uh, the limey, I remember when we did the limey and Terrence Stamps thing, especially that scene I love where uh, him and Louis Guzman are talking back and forth. And he's like, you're going to do what? And then he's like, "Eh, whatever. He's doing the rhyming slang, but he doesn't understand what he means. So he thinks he's going to go do something else. Listen, Dad, if you are going to talk about naughty things in front of these American girls, then at least speak English English. All right, my son. I could have had it away, but it's cracking duty, my old China. Are you telling pork pies in a bag of tripe? Because if you are feeling quiddly, why not just have a Jane Arthur? What, Billy? No, mates. Too right, you. Don't you remember the crembo din-din we had with the grotty scotch bin? Oh, the one that was all sixes and sevens. Yeah, yeah she was a travelling striper, but the Morris dancer lived up the apples and pears. Yeah, 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 she was the barrister that became a yeah. bobby and a lorry. And they gave her the gatling gun. In the bottom of St. Regis tea kettle. And then she sat on a turtle. <laughs> maybe the closer connection may be what's called Polari, which was a gay rhyming, a gay slang in London in the 50s that was kind of this code language that was used among gay Londoners in order to talk amongst themselves so that people kind of knew, you know, because that was still at a time when you could be arrested and jailed and go through medical treatment for being homosexual, like Alan Turing. There might be more of a connection to that, but not a lot of people. I think, bring up that connection because not a lot of people know about Polari. I think the only thing in popular culture would be Morrissey album and some of the, you know, Morrissey using some of those types of words in some of his songs. There's a bit of that in the Ned set. Pretty Polly uh, means money. In the movie, he says, if you want Pretty Polly, you take it. And I assumed it's women and you can just rape them or take them. But it's, but it's Cockney rhyming slang for, for lolly, which is money. And there's more Cockney rhyming slang in the Ned set. It is interesting that George and Dim want the money. Alex is not concerned about the money. He's more concerned about the fun. He does have that drawer where he keeps all of his loot that he has. And then he's got the other drawer where he keeps his pet snake, Reggie. I know it's not Reggie, but I just have to say my pet snake, Reggie. Come on, show a little backbone, will ya? Another thing I was really struck by was how Alex, he cares about his carnal fun, but what it seems like his real pursuit, like you said, is intellectual and the divine, the divine achievable through art. And also he cares about power and being the leader and how to treat your men, you know. A good leader knows when to sort of treat his soldiers as well. Like in his mind, 
he cares about being like a statesman and a general. And also, of course, in the context of Kubrick being fascinated with Napoleon and wanting to make his next film about Napoleon that obviously was never made. I don't even know what to say. If there's some kind of respect for him as a person who does have the power to command people. And also in the 21st chapter, he sort of uh, knowingly, he decides to give up power. He's like, okay, maybe this is behind me. Youth is behind me. And being trying to be powerful and and getting money is behind me. Let, let he lets in the twenty first chapter he has new drugs, and he says, "I'll set this one out, boys. You go and do it." It's another. It's it's a really interesting aspect. I think Kubrick somehow taken with this, interested by this, wants to explore this side of of how to be a leader of men. And I think that connects back to Alexander the Great because Alexander the Great again was he was a teenager. He was you know in his late teens, early twenties when he conquered the then known world. You know from Europe to India. So, so there's that kind of aspect of I'm a leader and I know how to handle my people. But the other aspect of this too, I was thinking about, and he was, you know, the, the whole thing around the art for him. And I don't think he says it as much in that way. And typically when this is used in that way in a film, it's a much darker character, but the, uh, not that he isn't one, but it's even more dark is that maybe it is the violence and it is the rape that he sees as the art and he does it for the art. He's not in it for the money. Like the money's the money. Like you're going to be fine. Like just focus on the art, you know? And when you focus on the art, that gives your life meaning. And I think that that's what his real conversation is with them about, you know, what do you, what would you do with the big, big money? What would you do with the big, big money? Like you got everything you want. No. You know, you're fine. You know, just focus on the art. You know, I'm the artist. This is, you know, it's like being in a band. It's like, oh, you know, we got to get Eddie Van Halen, you know, so that we could do the thing. It's like, no, we need a triumphant video first. It's like, just focus on the art. Yeah. Maybe learn how to play your instruments. Ludwig Van Halen. That's the other thing I love about the cat lady. Kubrick doesn't give us a close up of it, but it was a pretty well known bust of Beethoven that she picks up and is kind of, you know, trying to swat him with it while she's, while he, of course, is using the giant dick. And also the minister, when he comes into Alex's cell, sees the, is impressed by the bust, the other bust of Beethoven in there. I was so taken that the priest character is actually a pretty decent guy. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think, is there one decent or, or even like remotely ca- likable character? And it's the priest and you don't like him, but he's the only person who says a little bit of truth and is mocked. By people, so you get a, maybe a little sympathy sympathy for him, but at the same time, how can you how can the how can the member of the clergy be the the voice of truth here? But I don't know. Is there anybody else in the movie who's remotely sort of you could possibly identify with as your avatar in the movie? Not really. He's really the most humanistic in terms of he understands these prisoners. He understands their needs, as he says. I understand the needs of you know. Not sure he does. He thinks he does. But I think it's a deeper thing than that. When it really comes to this question of free will and choice, it, and, and this is a thing that I find interesting. I mean, because if you can look at the history of the church, there was a period where they didn't mind converting people very heavily. You know, nobody expected the Spanish Inquisition. But in this case, he's much more of a 
he's much more of a humanist. He's much more, no, you have to decide for yourself. You have to understand your motivations and you have to understand what it is that you're trying to do. And, and, you know, what being a human is about is about making moral choice. And he becomes, he does say, uh, I, I, I'm so much more critical of the, of the priest than you are because the priest does say those things and maybe believes them, but that's not what re- what's really going on. What's really, look, first of all, obviously Alex is, 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 is uh is duping this guy the guy's a dupe and when he, t- he he's, it's not alex knows what's up and this guy doesn't this guy is there to he's c of v he's uh hell and damnation and uh i know what you boys are going he doesn't know what does he know he doesn't know anything but but and he ends up being the dupe of these political forces which is a very correct historical reading of of the church they go along with the people in power they give them what they want and then right at the end he sort of steps up and says oh but now he doesn't have a moral choice and it's like okay so he says it in his impotent little voice and the machinations go on as planned so at the at the best reading of him is that he's still so very impotent and sort of one thing that they cut out of the movie that was in the book is that alex turns prison snitch and uses the priest in that way as well, he will feed the priest information. So whether it be true or false information, like, oh, yeah, I heard on the pipes because people are tapping out messages on the pipes in the prison. You know, I heard on the pipes that this guy's going to try to escape on this day, feeds that information to the priest, and that one was true. But then he'll make up other things and keep feeding information to the priest in order to, again, kind of get in his good graces, which, yeah, and Man, I love when he's reading the Bible so astutely and the priest is there and just like so proud that Alex is reading the Bible now. And there's Alex just thinking about what it'd be like to whip Christ. And at the end, when they are, you know, they don't do that um, kind of uh, the, the test with the pictures. It's more. What giveth, O little droogies, I said. What new Bazoomni idea dost thou in mind have? So they both like had an embarrassed smack at that, and then they sat down either side of the bed and opened up this book. They were like pictures of real horror show devotchkas, and I said I would like to give them the old in-out, in-out with lots of ultraviolence. There were like pictures of Chelovex being given the boot straight in the litso and all red, red crovy everywhere, and I said I would like to be in on that. And there was a picture of the old Najoy Droog of the prison Charlies carrying his cross up a hill. And I said, I would like to have the old hammer and nails. That whole scene, when I looked at him and, you know, dressed in the finest of Roman fashion and taking part in the toll chucking and the nailing in is, um, to me, that's why I, I joked on the Caligula episode that Caligula is the side sequel to Clockwork Orange because... McDowell in here, you could just see, like, if Alex could be a historical figure, he would have been Caligula. Get to sleep with his sister. Yeah, it'd be fucking fantastic. Yeah, just whatever you want to do. Just, you know, you're you're the man, you're in charge, you know. Oh, the other big difference between book and movie, too, is that those two girls at the record store are only 10 years old in the book. So it makes it... Yeah, there's yeah, that, isn't there? Yeah, and basically, it's not consensual. Once he gets them back to the place, it's basically just rape after rape after rape, rather than... Nor can it be consensual with a 10-year-old anyway, but yeah. And that's where I think Kubrick was builds our sympathy as, as a viewer. That if certain things that were in the book were done specifically as the book is in the film, I, I guess the modern equivalent would be maybe like early Gaspar Noe stuff. 
you know, it would just be so bleak. And, you know, I'm thinking maybe like I stand alone. You know, I remember when I saw I stand alone, I was just like, God, this yeah, oh. it's a punch to the stomach. Like one thing after, and, oh, God, I felt like I needed lid locks to continue to watch that thing. But uh, not that it's bad. It's just it's, oh, you, you know, like I talked about with Solo on that episode. I'm like, you know, I, I don't want to live in that space. You know, it's okay to visit every now and then. It's like going to the art museum and seeing a painting that's really disturbing. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, I don't want Francis Bacon over my couch. It's, just, it's too much. Yeah, that's why I always avoid those movies, and I never watched a Noé movie or um Hanukkah film. Like, I know what they're sort of about, and I just don't want to live there. I don't go there. But, of course, um Kubrick was no stranger to this doing Lolita a few years earlier, which is the same sort of thing, where he obviously had to age her a little bit for the movie, because otherwise the movie wouldn't have been made. And Sue Lyon was probably, what, 18, I think, or 20 even? That Alex is still in high school is kind of a laugh to me because I'm just like, this guy's way past 18. This is, what was it? Matthew Broderick was almost 30 when he played Ferris Bueller or something? Yeah, but, you know, we got to go along with it. So, sure, he's in high school. Sure, why not? That's why Pierre Deltoid shows up at his house. And, my God, do I love that guy. That thing that he's doing with his voice, it's like if I could imitate one person from the film, it would be him. Hi, 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 Mr. Deltoid. Funny surprise seeing you here. Ah, Alec boy, awake at last, yes? I met your mother on the way to work, yes? She gave me the key. She says something about a pain somewhere, hence not at school, yes? A rather intolerable pain in the head, brother, sir. I think it should be clear by this after lunch. Oh, or certainly by this evening, yes. The evening's the great time, isn't it, Alex Bond? <laughs> Couple of the old chives, huh? No time, no time, yes. And that weird, like, homosexual thing that's going on there with pulling him back on the bed and then more ball trauma. I mean, Robbie talked about how phallic this film is. There is so much ball trauma going on in this. I mean, even if you look at them at the beginning with those glasses of milk, they're basically resting those glasses on their cod pieces. You know, and it's just like, the cod pieces just emphasizing the dick throughout it. I mean, even when Steven Birkhoff is torturing Alex at the uh, police station, what's Alex do? He reaches up and grabs his balls. You know, it's like after one after another, after another It's just, yeah, the, the dick is ever present in this film. This first shot inside of the police station, it is the left-hand side of the screen is just basically a man's crotch. You know, I can't remember if that's Alex's at that point or whose it is, but it's just here's a crotch on the left hand side of the screen. And again, the the eye issue again, Mr. Deltoid in that close up. And he's got that eye that's off. I hope it drives you to madness. And it's like, oh, God, just that close up. It's it's like uh, it's like a Bruegel painting or something. It's just like, uh, you know, he wants these ugly faces and you're, you know, right in your right in your mug. The whole thing with the police I love the check-in scene at the prison. Now that scene in a modern film, I think would be 30 seconds. It wouldn't be procedural, but I think in a lot of ways, this is, there's several different things going on there. And uh, I'm going to bring in Brazil here too, as well. He's got this check-in and I look at the, the, the British guy, the, um, the, the officer, the warden, I, can, I I don't know exactly what his title is, but he's definitely the one who's been in charge of Alex since he's, come to the prison as sort of a proto Arlie Ermey, 
that there's kind of a proto version of that, but it's a very British thing. And in some ways, my first memories of order and structure was in my own house with my grandmother, who was like, right, you know, there's rules, proper way to do things and, you know, that kind of thing. But the other thing I think about with him, it's almost this side. That character is almost like this side of Monty Python, because at this time, there's all of these like police characters and Monty Python, right, what's all they're saying? And really kind of, you know, by the book process, it represents just this real kind of British stiffness and British properness. And we do things a certain way. You see that line on the floor? Your feet belong on the other side of it. It's just so good. And the other thing that I think about with it is, is that Kubrick's looking at Britain through an American lens, much like I was saying, I'm going to bring in Brazil here. Uh, as much as Brazil owes a lot to 1984, it also owes a lot to Gilliam looking at Britain and going, you guys are so bureaucratic. Here's the form, fill out this form, get this one stamped, go over there. There's these processes that have been put in place as part of the social welfare state, I guess, in England. And then when you couple on top of it, the need for control, because when you're when you have that big of an empire, which they did, it's things need to be controlled if you're going to control that many people. So they have this need for control. And I think that it's kind of shown in this film through all of that. And I think Kubrick's kind of making a thing and going, yeah. Alex is awful and chaos agents and there's that violence, but there's also the state violence. And that's the thing is I don't think we talk about the state violence as much in this film. Well, that's what the, that's the purpose of the film, isn't it? Is to start you off with some ultra violence in the first half and then show you a different kind of violence, which is less sexy and less obvious to the, to, to your eye in the second half. Uh, I th and I think maybe there's also some, maybe, I don't know. I felt it now watching it, that there's a, critique of the human failing, because what is the thing that permits them to use Alex to their ends, is the fact that he's a story. In, in many ways, it's a media critique, the second half. We can hear the story of an individual, and they put it in a certain context just to use it as a tool for their own ends. But if we hear about a thousand people dying, then we, our brain just can't even process it. We know he's already a newspaper story because of even when it came to the rape of the white writer's wife, that the cat lady's like the description of what the man said is very similar to what was just said to me. I read it in the newspaper. So we know that, you know, when you, you mentioned the newspapers at the end, there might have been a newspaper montage in the middle of the film as well, just to show where he's at as far as British society. Because I think that his trial was probably a show trial. And I'm glad that we don't see the trial. I think that the whole idea of what you're talking about, Rob, with the checking in and that character that would have been played by like a Michael Palin or maybe Graham Chapman and a, a probably Palin. I can see Palin with the small mustache like this guy has. Today we're going to do marching up and down the square. That is, unless any of you got anything better to do. Well, anyone got anything they'd rather be doing than marching up and down the square? Yes, Atkinson. What would you rather be doing, Atkinson? Well, to be quite honest, Sarge, I'd rather be at home with the wife and kids. Would you now? Yes, Sarge. Right, off you go. That character in that whole segment is not there 
in uh, the book either. So that's all added by Kubrick. So you talking about how he's showing that officiousness of British society. I completely agree with that. I was reminded of the Blues Brothers myself, especially when it- it's the one way that A Clockwork Orange informed the Blues Brothers. And I did like, though, you were talking about uh, just those little rules and things like, okay, you know, you can't just toss that chocolate onto the table. You have to pick it up and put it down properly. I'm surprised that Alex obeys. You know, by that point in the film, he is obeying pretty good, or at least putting on that show. He plays show, along. He plays along. The show. Yeah. There's that, but I also think that there's there, there may be a grudging respect that basically here's a guy who has his own limits, so he nods to the limits of others. He goes, okay, I understand you have your limits too. You know, that I... I, I do things in a particular way. I have a particular way of doing this. I want things done a particular way, or I will bash my own guys. Players got to nod to another player. I see, I see it differently. I see him as very obviously playing along while he's inside. And just like Mike said, he, he code switches. He for sure tones down the net set, plays along, does. In the book, apparently, he's also turned snitch. I didn't remember or know that part. But also, just to cap off the thing about the media portrayal of him, it also really struck me just now how the cold welcome that he gets when he go, goes back home to, to P&M, to mom and pop, it turns out, it was very obvious to me that it basically, that the cold reception that he gets is due to the way that he was portrayed in the papers as a villain, as a monster, as a whatever. And then later when he's in the hospital and uh, shakes the minister's hand and decides and, and is eager to play ball, all of a sudden, the minister gets positive press coverage. The guy's a hero all of a sudden. His mom and pop show up again. And all of a sudden, oh, we just read in the paper that you've been a victim of this terrible thing. So not only are they dummies, but they're people who are very easily and eagerly swayed by what they read in the papers. Thank goodness that's changed because if that was like, if it was like that today, it would be in a, in a terrible situation. <laughs> I also think that it shows how disconnected they are from their son, that a lodger, a guy who's renting from them and has only been there for a few weeks from what we're led to believe in, in the dialogue is much more family centered that he's on the couch with them. He's eating with them. He's reading the paper. He's hanging out. They know more about him than they know about their own son. And I think in some ways that shows maybe Kubrick saying, look, look at the dis disconnect in society that mothers and fathers don't even know their own kids. And that might be part of the reason why these kids are doing what they're doing, that this is another part of that psychology in some way. Another thing with the change from the book to the film is that, and I, I don't know, Mike, I, I think you had a chance to reread it. I didn't have a chance to reread it. Um, is that I feel like the, the, the change with the film is that the film is more an indictment of system, while the book is more a, a question of moral choice. And while the moral choice stuff is in the film, it's not as heavy as it is about the system. That is the system that is created and the system uses this individual. And yeah, the individual is a horrible person, but it's the system. It's a critique of um, how things operate and they'll continue to operate. And it is a machine and it doesn't care. And it will just find another probably and, you know, repeat the same mistakes over and over again. How horrible is it? that poor Frank Alexander and his wife and Frank Alexander, the writer character is basically that's Anthony Burgess because they break into his place and he's a writer and he's writing a book called a clockwork orange and Burgess in real life 
had his his wife was raped by four men and he felt completely powerless about it and kind of used a clockwork orange to exercise some of those demons. The poor guy, his wife is raped. She can't take it. I think commits suicide. He's left in a wheelchair, completely mentally shattered. Alex comes back into the story. The guy has a breakdown basically. And what happens to him at the end? Oh, this subversive character was thrown in jail. Don't worry about him. He's taken care of now. He gets institutionalized. He gets put into that system that Alex had been in. He gets punished again. You know, he's punished by Alex. He's punished by the system. It's so terrible. And that to me is like one of the, the, I, I hate to say best, but most pointed pieces of irony in the whole thing is that this guy just keeps getting fucked over. You could even say that basically the system does what the system does in both the victims and the perpetrators. No, but they have a, but they have a hierarchy of villains. Uh, Alexander is worse off because he's a political prisoner. He's, he's here trying to undermine our regime. And he's, this guy's just a psychopath. So the psychopath we can use to our ends. And the other guy we're going to hide away. It's never, you're never going to read about him in the paper. He's, he's, he's just disappeared. Patrick McGee. One of my favorite performances in the entire movie. And I mean, of all the lines that I quote, probably try the wine. My favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Remind me to come over for dinner at your place sometime, Mike. It it reminds me of another food related line that I like to use, which is from Old Dark House. Have a potato. Have a potato. Try the wine is up there with. Oh, man. I'm pleased you appreciate good wine. Have another glass. Some people, I've read a lot about this film before we talk today, and a common theme seems to be saying, oh, when Alex comes back to the house, the way that Alexander is framed and the way that his hair is, people are like, oh, well, he looks like Ludwig van Beethoven at that point. I don't really see that. So I don't really buy that one. Maybe. I don't, I didn't quite see it until you said it, but. I do have, I, I didn't read a lot, but I did read one thing. You can use this or not. I, I have one Kubrick book and there's a foreword by Steven Spielberg. And it's, I, I thought it was pretty cool. Look, let's see what you think. He says, some of his movies were like stylized theater as ritualized as Kabuki. Patrick McGee in A Clockwork Orange, Tim Carey in Paths of Glory, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Stanley pushed those performances to a level that at first seemed overblown. But we, his Spielberg and his fellow filmmakers, we followed him into this world until all these those characters seemed perfectly normal. Because he is. He chew, he's chewing the scenery. He's going so far. He's going... No, Nobody tamed that performance. That was out there. There's uh, the audio commentary for Clockwork. Is, uh, there's some apocryphal stuff in there as well. Malcolm McDowell telling some stories, which is kind of funny. But uh, he and McGee had worked together on stage and... He had, uh, I'm trying to remember, McGee was so unhappy with one of the roles that he was portraying that he would complain all the time, like under his breath, thinking or pretending like nobody could hear him while he was on stage, just complaining. But sure enough, they did. But he was talking to McDowell and saying that he felt like he was very much overacting. And he talked about that shot of uh when Alexander finds out that it is Alex upstairs singing singing in the rain that reaction shot that crazy like bottom up reaction the shot yeah. he says 
it looks like I'm taking a shit. But the thing is, is I'm trying to think of a time before this where, and even though they don't use the term, that PTSD or being triggered by something had been in a film in that way. And that's really what that is. It's it's Kubrick kind of showing us what something triggers this fucking horrible memory that you have, and you're just kind of locked in place. I had a situation, which, like I was talking about with the, the sexual assault thing, where I was in a place and I... I had sort of a similar, I had to be carried out by a friend of mine because I just kind of lost reality for a few minutes because of something that reminded me of what had happened. So it's really horrible. Like, I remember even as a kid looking at it and going, God, that face is so like contorted. It's almost funny, but it's also like, it's like he wants you to try and laugh at it, but you can't because you realize how much pain that man is really in. The whole singing in the rain thing is not in the book. And so I don't think we get that moment of recognition from Alexander realizing that that's Alex, you know, and Alex is like, well, I wore a mask. It's a little bit. Yeah, it is more off screen. It's like he gets those friends and they come by and he's not even there when they basically. He, he gets off the phone and then you sort of see it dawning on him. Then he cuts to the bath for a good 30 seconds and then cuts back, cuts back to him when he's already completely completely right uh, right i'm sorry i was talking about the book that you don't get that moment in the in the book and yeah you get that in the in the film and that they tie it again to music that it is the music of alex singing singing in the rain which then triggers f alexander that alex had done singing in the rain you know this musical act is it for us is it for his droogs? Is it just for him? Is it for F. Alexander himself? I mean, that moment when he, when Alex gets down on the floor and is looking basically at us through that really distorted wide angle lens, you know, Viddy well, little brother, Viddy well, that is, is so well done. And then again, like we are using music as the central theme and music just pushes everything forward. And that the, that the whole fucking movie ends and then you get Gene Kelly singing, singing in the rain during those end credits. Yeah. It's like a knife in the heart. I just want to say one thing. My friend, Yael Shuv had an interesting um, observation about it, that in, in a way in the, it's usually talked about how the, the brainwashing is in the second half, but in a way the Gene Kelly thing or the singing in the rain song in the first half is a little bit does to us what the movie does to Alex in the second half, because we're like that. We love that. We, everybody, especially if you're a cinephile, you know that song. You like that song. You love that song. And it's like, what are you doing to Gene Kelly? You know, it's, it's that rhyming effect. It's that doubling effect. Like you were talking about Mike, you know, that the, the writer is just as music has been turned against him the way that the ninth has been turned against Alex. And speaking of which, we really haven't talked about the Ludovico technique all that much. Well, let me just tell you that uh, physically, I've had those things put on my eyes before. Uh, I had uh, LASIK surgery done years and years ago, and they bring out those things. And I was just like, oh, just like Clockwork Orange. <laughs> but luckily, they have uh, basically what they were doing to Alex with the eye drops. I mean, they put in – it was basically liquid volume that they put into my eyes, and so they completely numbed it. So I – Felt no discomfort whatsoever. I was very happy that I got to see that and be like, oh, okay, this is being done to me. But yeah, luckily it wasn't any sort of brainwashing thing. It was just uh, making sure that I could see uh, 2020 for a few years and now I'm back to the old spectacles. 
I, I just want to talk about general the technique. So obviously there's there's a thought in um, it, it it owes a lot to Pavlov. It owes something to to Skinner and behavioralism and you know and things like that and sort of trained behavior of of animals. You can talking about when I was a kid. I think it was I don't know. It must have been around this time actually. My mother was going through like a Weight Watchers program, and I myself had been a heavy child, and I was trying to learn moderation and things like that. So there was a program that was offered out of the hospital near our house where they're like, bring your favorite snack food that you that you like. And I'm like, okay. And so they brought us into a room around a conference table and they put slides up and someone would talk to us while we ate the snack, while we looked at images of desserts, nice food, with cigarette butts in it, with uh, cockroaches, with trash, and trying to equate this taste in our mouth with that on the screen as an aversion therapy to keep us from eating these things in excess. So to this day, I don't even think they make it anymore, but it used to be peanut butter Snickers. Okay, so which one tasted better? Uh, Steve. Yeah, the guy. With Lisa, I only tasted peanut butter and chocolate. Lisa had just eaten a peanut butter cup. But with Steve, I tasted something more. It was peanut butter and uh, Snickers. You're right. Steve had just eaten Snickers peanut butter squared. Steve was delicious. Yeah. And I remember eating that peanut butter Snickers bar and, like, looking at these images. So I go, yeah, I guess maybe I had some sort of Ludovico-esque technique. Uh, So So it worked? So you wouldn't eat it? I pretty much, yeah. I I, I think a similar. Uh, I've had friends who have talked about when they turn legal to drink. Friends have gone out with them and they drank way too much of something and then they threw up and they're like, just even the smell. Like like I had a teacher who talked about Jack Daniel's whiskey. He goes, he goes, just the smell. Like if somebody opens it, it's like it's enough. To go, oh, like make. I had that once for a year and a half and I got over it. So there is some some element of, of fact, you know, in terms of scientific uh, behavioralism, in terms of, you know, training people. Supposedly, according to Burgess, you read about it in the paper as a possibility and, and, and helped him write the book. I don't know. You can't believe a word out of this guy's mouth. But yeah. Yeah. And Ludovico, I mean, it could be a reference to Ludwig van Bo- Beethoven himself. It could be a reference to I think there was an Italian uh, leader who could convince other factions of his enemies to fight each other while he kind of stood back on the sidelines. I think it's more the Ludwig van, especially when they get to the section of torture where they Ludwig van Beethoven's music. I was, even though I was a fan of this film, I was not really aware of how at one point the Nazis tried to co-opt this. I mean, and this is one of those horrible things when there is great art out there that really awful people try to co-opt. I mean, you know, Pepe the Frog or whatever. <laughs> there are a lot of things where it's just like, oh, now I can't stand it. But I was glad that I didn't know of the Nazi history with the Beethoven stuff. And I'm glad that it feels like it's kind of been reclaimed. And I do find it interesting that what is it like the second or third session is the one where they use the Ludwig van Beethoven music. And then they start to associate the Nazi images. Triumph of the whale footage. Yeah. And well, and then there's some other footage in there too. I'm going to say like a distant journey. There might be some clips from there. And I know that McDowell was talking about how Kubrick had uh, access to a lot of the archives and was looking at, um, footage of concentration camps and just how horrible it was. So 
it was like after a while, he's like, I couldn't even go over to Stanley's uh, for like a few weeks because he was all immersed in this stuff, which Kubrick being a Jewish person must have had quite an effect on him as well. I mean, just seeing those images as anybody, you are repulsed. But I would think especially a Jewish person, I could be completely wrong. To use the music, I mean, it's the only thing that is keeping Alex Alex, you know, and then that they take that away from him. It's the only real good thing about him is that he likes classical music and now they're ripping it away from him. They're associating it with something terrible. But in the movie, for some reason, they make it a point to, to say that that, what, that happened by accident, that the music just happened to be the ninth and they didn't design it as a special punishment for him, even though it would seem that they tell him that and then he repeats it also. So at least the characters in the film believe it. That it wasn't on purpose, which is a an interesting choice. I don't know. You'd think they'd say that they chose it specifically for him to break his spirit. The use of the ninth is interesting because, as you mentioned, Mike, it was used by by the Nazis in, in that uh, because it's considered such an uplifting song. And as a matter of fact, it's actually, if, if I remember correctly, it's like the European song of the EU is the ninth at the same time when we talk about classical music and nazis it's typically wagner we understand that connection in that way but um and we don't talk as much about beethoven but the the whole thing with the films themselves i find it's interesting in terms of they escalate and they work with like any good art works with things that you know so of course the first film is a group of guys who are dressed like his gang and the second film that they show him again but the first one's violence. The second one's rape. They're all basically dressed the same. They just have different hats. Yeah, from different military periods. Yeah, it's like a stuff, Napoleon yeah. hat at one point, which I thought was a nice nod. Yeah, Napoleon hat with a thing of bloody gash on it. Yeah, and then there's, uh, again, the, the, the whole phallic stuff where the doctor says, oh, I'm sure you got to do two sessions tomorrow, and I'm sure you'll be limp after that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't catch that. And can we also talk about how... Um, when Alex gets out of prison, they play Pomp and Circumstance. And it's like, and apparently it's like the big graduation thing that's played at every graduation. Is he graduating from, from prison? Yeah, that's definitely the graduation song in the American context. I think it's also used as the entrance for the Queen, isn't it? Uh, Pomp and Circumstance, oftentimes. But. For the Queen, they play God Save the Queen. Pomp and Circumstance gets played for the American president, not for the Queen. It's graduations and it's for the president. So that's an American, probably, even though Elgar was a Brit, it's, pro it's probably an American choice by Kubrick. It's the Wendy Carlos version of the ninth that gets played, too, during the Ludovico technique, which is interesting because it feels like Wendy Carlos's music is the music of the age, you know, that we start off with that in the Corova Milk Bar. It could be, again, in Alex's head, it could be playing in the Milk Bar, but it feels very diegetic to the Ludovico sequence that it is her music in that kind of uh, electronic version of the ninth that gets played. And I, I like that he is playing, Kubrick is playing with the different versions of the songs that you've got, you know, you might have the classical version of it in one point versus the synthesized version of it at another. I know that Carlos had written a lot of music that didn't end up being used, not as much as, say, like Alex North from 2001. He didn't just take it and throw it away, but it was, he was very ju judicious in the way that he used her music throughout the whole film. And then, like I said, kind of gave Alex a theme of that 
funeral for Queen Mary uh, song, which you would think that it would be the ninth, but really the ninth is used more sparingly. It's not in the film as much as you would think. It's also, I think, more hummable. Uh, a lot of people know the ninth, even... I mean, it's they know the fifth, dun, 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 and then they know the ninth. The doorbell noise. Yeah. So uh, the the other thing that I like about that is that, as we talked about, it's sort of this industrial version. It's this mechanical version of uh, – it, it lacks humanity. It, it lacks the warmth of strings and voice in, in the same way. The use of Wendy Carlos's music in the film in that way is much like a few years later – why craft work works so well is that there is that mechanical structure that both it's presenting the future, but it's also commenting on it at the same time that it's saying, you know, have we lost our humanity in this, you know, industrial age kind of thing. I always forget about his fantasies while he's masturbating to the ninth in his room and how he portrays himself in his mind as a vampire that you get that amazing under, shot of the woman being hanged so many great images and i didn't realize until reading about it more mcdowell in the commentary is like oh i'm not masturbating i'm just taking my boot off and i'm like yeah sure you know okay i i understand now that you're joking but as a kid i had no idea that he was masturbating to that so i'm, I'm just like what is going on why is he making this face and really, I mean, his his left arm is moving a little bit, but really, it's not like the regular mechanical, speaking of mechanical or clockwork rhythm of masturbation. And my God, that face that he makes, too, when the ninth comes back up at the end, when he's shaking hands with the minister. And I forgot about how his eyes roll back into his head. My God, what a face. That's such a great face. It's orgasmic. It's it's gorgeousness and gorgeousity made flesh. All the devil trombones and angelic strings. Yeah, it's uh, all the little hairs on my plot standing endwise. <laughs> and then, yeah, he then he goes right back into another sexual fantasy at the end. It's it's just remarkable. Talking about his interaction with the music and how it affects him. And uh, obviously in that scene in his bedroom with where he puts the snake and there's the woman, you know, painting and then the Christ's, you know, in the editing, oh, you know, with all of that. Christ. I mean, it's, I love it. Yeah, it's all done in editing. It's like the psycho murder. Nothing's in motion, but it's all in editing. And of course, when he comes back and the snake is dead, that's another phallic symbol that has died. And of course, it has the most virile name, Basil. Yes, thank you. Not Reggie, but Basil. Which I can't help but think of uh, John Cleese. And of course, Cal Basil the Rat over there and Basil the Snake over here. Basil Faulty. We haven't really talked about Dim. And I fucking love Dim. I love who is it, Warren Clark that plays Dim. I love how he doesn't have a thought of his own through so much of this and that he repeats things when Georgie is talking about his plans for the big, big money. And there's dim like, yeah, big, big money. And just like, he's that echo. And then even in the rape scene, when Alex is singing, singing in the rain and dim is repeating the lyrics. And then when he gets stuck on that, are you ready for love thing? It used to drive me crazy, but now I find it a little endearing that he just keeps like, are you ready for love? Are you ready for love? 
Yeah. It, it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in Brazil with Bob Hoskins where he shows up to fix and he's got the guy with him. Your air, air conditioner, sir. Central, central service. Yeah. <laughs> air conditioning, sir. Yes. And I love that lady at the end that gives him that test of all those photos. And she is so happy. She just has the most chipper she voice. Is, isn't yes. She? That and also the, the, I'm sorry, the woman with, the, with her breasts out on stage. She they do the whole thing. The guy's sitting like retching on the floor and she does this most, the most grateful, cur- graceful curtsy I've ever seen in my life. I was also trying to figure out because the mom and the, the, uh, the lady, the psychologist both have colored hair. And some women in here have colored hair. All the women in the milk bar, the women's statues have colored and hair. And the woman giving the test on, on stage as well. She has this wig. Yeah. Blue, blue, silver wig. And I always found it funny that Alice's mom has this colored hair because she, well, at the time, those colors weren't normal. Today, someone would go off the deep end purple or pink or something and wouldn't think anything about it. But 1971, that was not. No, but it's wigs because you see it in the scene with PR Deltoid on the bed. You see the heads with the wigs in the background. She has like three or four sets of those. I just think it's interesting that there's these color splashes with with that kind of stuff in that way. I guess that's the future. God, I love the the set decoration for Alex's parents' apartment. It just is so wild, especially during that scene with Joe, the lodger and going between his dad and then his mom and Joe on the couch. And I think it's behind his dad where it's those like silver balls that look like they're actually 3d. Like it's an actual texture on the wall rather than a wallpaper. It just looks wild. And I mean, Philip Stone, uh, of course, most people know him as being, uh, you know, the former caretaker in uh, The Shining. But it's like the more I watch movies, the more I see him popping up. I mean, he was just in uh, Flash Gordon. We were talking about last week. Um, he was in The Medusa Touch, which we talked about a few months ago. So it's like. This has almost been like the, you know, 2021, the year of Philip Stone, you know, <laughs> which, which is fine. I, I would be fine celebrating Philip Stone because the guy's fantastic and I love him in this and I love the woman that's playing his mom and that they are just so completely out of touch with their son when they're having that conversation around the breakfast table. And he's like, well, I'd like to know what he does at night. And she's like, oh, well, you know, odd jobs. It's like they're so in denial of anything to do with their son and that Alex keeps them locked away that he's got the combination lock on his door and is like, this is my private sanctuary. You're not allowed in here. And they respect that. They have no authority over him at all. Personally, I think the parents are to blame is what I'm trying to say. Who lets their son have a combination lock on their door? I mean, I kind of wish I had one when I was a teenager, but. I hope that's not what Kubrick is trying to say. (laughs) I don't think it is. Do you want to play the uh, spot dark? Darth Vader game in here. Do you think there's anything sexual going on between Julian and the writer, or is it just that it was the fashion of the day to wear those short shorts and tight tank tops? I think that Kubrick's like you, Mister Soon to be the body of Darth Vader, but not the voice, were an internationally known bodybuilder. So let's show it off. And he also represents the mirroring, where Frank is the intellect, his body is now broken, so Julian is the body. Yeah, and he, plus he carries him like a little baby down the stairs. They they, they need to be together. Yeah, like the, like those guys in the th- in Thunderdome, right? Yeah, Master Blaster. Because he is the intellect, so it's you know to me, I look at like we were talking about the the, the victim 
gets screwed by the system as well. But it's like even because of that, because the victim knows that the society will not meter out the punishment the way that it needs to be done, at least to him, in order to feel like justice has been served. Um, it just forces him to go off the deep end. And of course he seeks revenge on his, on his own, because I, I think Kubrick is saying, even if you were an intellectual and even if you could sit down and like philosophically work out what's going on in the society, you'd still probably want to drive this person crazy or kill them. And, and not just the one guy, but his conspir- co-conspirators as well. They're all doing this political maneuver and uh, afterwards, yeah, they're all in the room. It's not a secret from any of the guys mechanically rolling balls down the pool table. All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear the second part of our interview with publicist Mike Kaplan. After that, we'll hear from Anthony Burgess biographer Andrew Bissell. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. I don't know how he does it. I mean, the guy does books. He writes reviews. He's on the show every week with me. I'm talking about my humble podcast partner, Mike White from the Projection Booth. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary. I just wanted to let you know, Cinema Detours, Mike's new book is out. It collects a bunch of reviews that he's done over the past decade or so for various places here and there, and you basically want to pick it up, and I'll tell you why. Because some of those older reviews, the movies that you have seen, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend. And then the movies that you haven't seen yet, well, Mike will add about another 100 to 150 movies that you're going to have to see before you die. You can give him a wedgie or something next time you see him. You can thank him for that one. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it over at our website, projection-booth.com. You can get it at amazon.com, and you can get it in either paper form, if you're old school, or you can get it for your Kindle, your e-reader. So there's no reason to detour Cinema Detours. From Mike White, and of course, you can always learn more about what we do, about the books, and everything else at projection-booth.com. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, I'm like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment with Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand-up comedy drag punk rock i was so rebellious and precocious i guess the definition of gay to me is freedom women gave the show its life i feel like well, because it's also a bit of a hunk fest you guys are right, hot true. as hell you are too kind that was, only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago it's a no holds barred talk with iconic creators and performers it's not f- 
white people. It's not, I hate white people. It's dear white people. It's how you start a letter. The whole climax of the show is a sex scene between Melchior and Vendla. And I remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way, shape, or form. I'm always thinking about the audience. Make them feel, make them laugh, and make them cry. I mean, that's as simple as it is for me. I had been not wanting to be a part of the film. It was clear in the edit that I had to, you know, really reshape it. So the film really told me what it needed to be. Cinema is an empathy machine, and, and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in. I get emotional just talking about it. And the tea is definitely spilled. David, don't no. edit anything of this out. <laughs> no, no, They no. don't want to hear all the charming stories. They want to hear the ugly, gory relationship that Jim and I have. <laughs> We're cutting that part out, by the way. And with guests like John Cameron Mitchell, Christine Vachon, Laverne Cox, Jonathan Groff, Justin Simeon, Jim Fall, Miss Coco Peru, Rachel Mason, Jeffrey Schwartz, H.P. Mendoza, and fabulous queens Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I'm sweating the house down. Oh, mama. You never know what's going to come up. You know me, I'm so big and strong that Eureka and Bob actually hide behind <laughs> me and I protect She them. is quite the chihuahua, mama. She does pop up. I was up. like, wait, should we have had security the whole time? <laughs> I think they think I'm the security, bitch. It's season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, premiering in the summer of 2020. Hope you can join us. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resent at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. Up first, we're going to hear the second part of the interview with Mike Kaplan, the publicist for A Clockwork Orange. You can hear the first part on the mythical 2001 episode, I Swear It Is Coming, and you'll be able to hear the rest of that interview over there. Was it pretty natural then for you to then start working on Clockwork Orange after that? I worked on 2001 for two years, and then I did the uh, ultimate trip Star Child campaign, which kind of, I think, cemented the phenomenon aspect of 2001, Another Life. And so then he wrote me a very nice letter saying that uh, uh, I'm the only one who knows how to handle a Kubrick film and will it come to London and work with me there? And what will I? And then he pointed out when could I get there? How much did I want? But I mean, it was, he followed, I think, the letter writing format of the Navy SEALs or something like that. I mean, it was very, you know, specific about uh, when, you know, what what I think, could I go about, you know, it was, it was all of that. So, uh, and I didn't know what to do because I had just been a publicity director for a very short time and moved to L.A., but it was an opportunity that I felt that's um, never going to happen again. So, I went to London. Now, I've talked with people that have worked in marketing and publicity for movies, and it feels like the job lasts a lot longer than I would think. I would generally think that you come in at the end and you're like, okay, here you go. Here's everything. But it feels like, no, people stick around and they learn a lot more about the films before they even start to do the publicity machine. With publicity in general, I mean, when you're the like the home office in New York, and you know about the big films coming out, and you would get certain things along the way that would help you position it and try to get breaks and whatever until the film came out the closer to the release, the more important everything would be, of course. 
That wasn't the situation with 2001 because everything was so secret. With Clockwork, I came aboard while he was in post-production. And I was, I was with him uh, when he was doing the sound and the uh, color correction and the editing and all of that. So, and I read the novel. Uh, he one of the great filmmakers, and I loved all his work. And so I came in there in, uh, I think it was May of 71, which was about six months before it opened. He didn't have, he never had a publicist on the film while he was shooting it. I mean, he didn't have anyone there. And no one saw anything until he was ready for them to see it. I came in May, which was six months or seven months before it was going to be released, and stayed on for another year afterwards, a year or two, I can't remember, because there were other foreign openings, and I wanted a position. It was the perfectly choreographed campaign, from my point of view. Everything that I wanted happened, and could, and largely because I was working with Stanley and would always you know, invoke his name, so whenever they spoke to me, they knew that I was speaking with Stanley's approval. It was very important that, from my point of view, and most ADPA people didn't get involved in the distribution and theaters that much because that was another division. But I was very concerned about that and wanted, wanted to make sure that, that was right. And so we devised certain things that we, we could select the theaters or challenge the theater if we didn't like it. That's another... I don't want to go into the details of that, but that was also a clever thing, the way that happened. And I wanted to make sure that there was going to be enough time between the opening of the film and its first rollout in case the, the uh, campaign had to be changed like it had to be with 2001, but not two years uh, later. I mean, you know, so all that had to be positioned and established so that by the February, mid-February first rollout of 12, it opened in four theaters to begin with at the end of the year, and uh, 71. And then the first release, really, of the film was in 1972, which is what, you know, the whole 50th anniversary of Clockwork being from 1971 is a little bit of a misnomer because there were only four theaters in it. The release was really in the, the, the next year. So I like to establish that so people are aware of it because, you know, they just say the 50th anniversary and, you know, it's not really correct in my mind. Anyway, so and, the, and so and the trailer had to be right and the poster had to be right and everything had to be and, and the initial press and you know, everything had to be perfect. And it was. And it was because um, because it was Stanley and I could cut through a lot of red tape, basically. It's the easiest way of putting it. So how does one decide how to market a film like Clockwork Orange? I mean, it's it's an unusual tale. And how do you find what the right tone is for that marketing campaign? Well, I mean, they're all, everything that he touches is unusual to begin with. So, uh, in fact, we did uh, an alternative press ad that said, he only ran it once uh, before it opened, but it was in like the L.A. Weekly and the Village Voice and the Chicago Reader and whatever. And it was what Stanley Kubrick been up to. And it was this very provocative shot of Stanley with the handheld camera filming Malcolm cutting um, uh, Agent Corey's dress. Well, again, it would just had to be something, I guess, going back to the 2001 song that had to be appropriate to the movie and had to look like nothing else because the film looked like nothing else. So it was first, you know, 
getting the poster design because at that point, we, the trailer and the movie poster were the two things that people responded to. There wasn't the, the internet. There wasn't all of this other stuff that happens now where posters are probably practically meaningless. You don't even see very much of them and they all look the same with the little, you know, all the credits at the bottom. You can't see what they are. So that was, and I've always felt that at that point that if, that the campaign was really essential and if a movie was good and had the wrong a wrong campaign, uh, it would have been different if it had been the right campaign. So he recognized that and wanted all of everything to be initiated by him, by us in London and not by the studio. And they, had, I think, sent in some rough concepts, which were really terrible. And it was really uh, almost an arrogant thing to do to to even come up with something when no one had even seen a, a frame of the movie. I mean, and it was so visually unique that anyway, it all worked out. And um, Philip Castle, um, there were two artists that we picked to uh, do do the comps and the roughs. Philip Castle was the artist who did the final was selected, and that was uh, you know so we worked with him for um, six months practically, and then Stanley had him do the logo in every language uh, for the next year. And it was, it's a unique design and it's one, you know, about what's the best movie poster. And, and, and well, sometimes usually it comes out on either number one or number two, which is, uh, and it's a, it's a great image. It's t- totally startling. Looks like nothing else. It's, you've never seen anything like it. And it's a, br- a brilliant piece. And all that came from working together with him in an initial idea that Stanley had. And I came in with it, you know, so it was a very, rewarding the way the whole thing developed. And then Stanley had worked with Pablo Ferro on the titles of um, Dr. Strangelove. And Pablo is this innovative, visionary, heavily accented Cuban um, video artist. Or, uh, and um, he came over and did the, um, the trailer. I don't know if you remember the trail, but it looked like nothing else. And there were aspects of the poster that he incorporated into it. I mean, it was real. So everything was perfect. I mean, we had the right theaters. We had the right poster. We had the right trailer. And uh, it was a totally different. We were in a situation also where the critics had to be on their toes. They didn't want to feel be left behind again or flat-footed like what happened with 2001. And this is a much easier film to uh, deal with anyway. Uh, so, um, yeah, there were lots of other little things, but I don't want to get into the hundreds of little details. I'm so curious what some of those misfires were as far as the designs that you were seeing that just weren't acceptable. I don't really, really remember. Uh, uh, I really don't remember them. And there was one that I saw later on, which I kind of remember did come in and that we just, it was something like he was on a crucifix. I mean, it was so inappropriate and it had nothing to do with any image from the movie. I mean, it was just, it just was, uh, it was some science fiction writer or, or artist had been contacted and uh, had read the, I guess the, the novel and came up with this ridiculous concept, which would have just turned everyone off. I don't remember what, uh, there weren't any others. I mean, I, I can't remember. There were a couple of um, uh, logos that were done. They were, they were from an ad agency that we had hired in London. And they were terrible. And then Stanley said, um, when we finally um, locked this, Philip Castle was the person to do it. And that was a whole series of events that brought us to that point. 
uh, he said something very smart, as usual, saying that have him do uh, the logo for the movie as well. And I found out that something, I'm paraphrasing him, I found out when someone is talented in one area, they can be talented in a related area, even though they don't know it and they'll resist. But I found that could be very helpful in getting something terrific and and uh, have him do the logo. Well, Phil didn't want to do the logo. He didn't do logos, blah, blah, blah. And so that was kind of a give and take. And he eventually did it and did this unique title treatment. So, and I've used that with almost every other campaign I've done. I've always asked the, the artist, because I like artwork and illustration as opposed to photography, to come up with the logo. And invariably, it, they do. That was another good lesson to learn from Stanley. How was Clockwork Orange initially received? Great. I mean, it got mainly rave reviews. and won the New York Film Critics Award. It opened on the 19th, I think, of December. And the next week it was, and it was named the best picture, best director, best screenplay, too, I think. Malcolm came in second or third. Almost all of the major critics loved it. I mean, it swept the New York Film Critics Award. And they always bring up Pauline Kalis, so the, kind of the great uh, American film criticism, which she wasn't. She didn't like it, but that was to be expected. And uh, her audience was limited to begin with. But everyone, everyone, you know. And then there was a four-week four dialogue between the education editor of the New York Times and Stanley in the arts and leisure section, who, who was, uh, he was lambasting the film, saying it was too violent and anti-human. And then we were talking about free choice and free will and be a Skinner. And that went on for, uh, that went on for a month. And then Burgess wrote a very good piece for the LA Times and he w went on, on tour for the film with Malcolm and separately. I mean, so we had a lot going, we had a lot going for it. And the film, it, it was, uh, the reviews were great. They were just great. I did this um, kind of editorial piece called the Orange Times. That was um, are you familiar with that at all? Or anyway, it was uh, it was um, sort of an uh, an editorial piece that came from from the studio that was done on a very kind of higher higher level. It didn't look like a normal kind of publicity. And it was like a newspaper that was formatted like Rolling Stone. There were a lot of um, critical quotes. There were great, it was great graphics. <laughs> it was something that Stanley didn't know about. It was one of the two things in my career with him that he didn't know about in advance. I just did it because I knew it was right. And, and, and it was something that the audience needed to read more about and that it, and, and it could um, perpetuate more business. And also it could provide the production notes for the film because they never wrote production notes because it was too difficult. I had too much to do. And that, the editorial I wrote for that served as the production notes. And fortunately, the key editorial piece on, uh, in, in the Orange Times was the review by John. He was a critic for the Catholic News and was fired for writing a rave review of Clockwork Orange. I ran his review as the main editorial piece in the Orange Times. It was really cool to do that. I thought that was really, uh, we were really lucked out on that. But he, of course, was willing to do it. And I, John E. Fitzgerald, fired from his 16-year position as a film critic for Our Sunday Visitor for raving about Clockwork Orange. So, so I mean, you can see, I mean, this is a great uh, painting of Stanley by Christiana, and it's all about, I mean, it was, a real, it was a beautiful 
piece. And I d did something similar for Bob uh, when he made Vincent uh, Theo. And so it became a collector's item. So this came out, and Stanley didn't know about it. And uh, when he saw it, I was uh, in L.A. staying at, with my girlfriend at the time. And he woke me up on early s Sunday morning saying he didn't like it. And I said, well, you know, it's something that was necessary. And he said, well, I didn't want him to see it because he would go through this. It would take two months longer. I, I just knew what I had to deal with. And I wanted it out because... The other reason for it was that it was an X-rated film and we couldn't advertise in any of the major newspapers in the cities that had that. They were like half of the major cities in the country. So this was going to be given out in the theaters for all the people that came to see the other films into record. So it's a way of counteracting uh, the ban on the movie. So I told him that. And then I said, we we're also handing it out on the lines of The Godfather. And so he says to me, he says, well, how many have you printed? And I said, well, I think it was about 50,000. He said, well, why don't you print 5 million then? So it was always a, uh, entertaining and stimulating and working with him. He was just uh, a unique, he had a great sense of humor, very, very, uh, could be very sardonic and very coy. And, and he was shy in many ways also. But he, he also was funny and demanding, but he wasn't this, uh, you know, uh, reclusive uh hermit or something that he has the reputation of. Uh, I mean, he's just totally the opposite. I mean, he just he just worked a lot and didn't want to waste any time, and that's the way he was. Mr. Kaplan, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. Good, good. Well, I'm glad it's, you've enjoyed it, and, and uh, it's fun talking to you. Next, we're going to hear from Andrew Bissell, who is the author of The Real Life of Anthony Burgess. Tell me a little bit more about your career and then eventually how you got into writing and studying about Anthony Burgess. I've been reading Burgess since I was at school. And when I was growing up in London in the 1980s, uh, he was on TV a lot. He was on the radio, but he was also, more importantly for me, he was in the newspapers every Sunday. He wrote a book review for the Observer newspaper. So part of my experience of growing up was to read Burgess every Sunday. And I got to learn a lot from that. And I knew that I liked his voice as a reviewer. And then at some point, I suppose around the same time, I began to read his novels and liked them very much. Studying literature at university, Burgess was not part of the, the course. He wasn't on the reading list. But I was lucky. I went to the University of Leicester in the Midlands of England, and they had a very good library. And all of his novels were there, including the ones which were out of print and the ones which you couldn't get for one reason or another. While I was there, I was five years in Leicester doing various degrees. I read most of his work and started to think about his journalism. From there, I wrote a master's dissertation about some of Burdis's novels. 
the next step was going to Warwick University for my PhD, and Burdis was the subject of my thesis. So I guess it's fair to say that I began as a reader and then became more interested in him academically. As I was approaching the end of the PhD dissertation, I managed to get a book contract to write a biography of Burgess. The Real Life of Anthony Burgess, which was published in 2005, was my first book. And after that, I became involved with the work of the Anthony Burgess Foundation in Manchester. I became a trustee of the foundation, one of its directors. And then when the uh, the chief executive job became vacant in 2010, I applied for it. And since then, I've been running the foundation, which is also the Burgess Estate. I think I began as a reader, and I, I then developed an academic interest in Burgess, and ultimately, I've become involved in managing his literary estate. Just about a lifelong thing. I've been writing about him since 1990, actually. So that's, um, yeah, I never met him. I got to know his widow, Liana, not very well, but she was aware of my work, and we were in correspondence. Uh, we would speak a lot on the telephone, and we met a few times Actually, I went to Monaco to meet her as I was finishing up the biography, and she read it and gave me permission to quote from his unpublished letters and so forth. Yeah, it was a relationship with his work and ultimately with his wife. That sounds bad, doesn't it? What I mean to say is that I got to to know his wife through through working uh, on his literature. And in recent times, what I've been doing is editing his collected works for Manchester University Press. This is my big project. It's probably going to take at least 20 years, and we're five years into it already. So to produce new editions of the works, principally the novels, but also the nonfiction, with new introductions and with very extensive commentaries, we are about seven volumes in, and there are three more coming out next year. So we've done about a third of the canon so far. Why the real life? of Anthony Burgess. It was foolish of me to call a book The Real Life without explaining it more carefully. I can try to do that now. There's a novel by Nabokov, his first novel in English. It's called The Real Life of Sebastian Knight. And it's a fictional biography of a character called Sebastian Knight, written by his half-brother, who doesn't really know him. And he tries to examine his past and to come to know him. There's a very odd episode, actually, where he goes to visit Sebastian, who's dying in hospital, and he sits all night in the room with the sick man, only to discover the following day that he's got the wrong room and his half-brother died the previous day. And Sebastian himself, who never existed, of course, but he writes a series of novels with titles like Other People and Missing Persons. The point of the novel if I'm understanding it rightly, the point of Nabokov's real life is that you can never know somebody in the way that you wish to as their biographer, that they're always several steps ahead of you disappearing over the next hill. And that was my sense of Burgess. I'd spent at this point maybe 10, 15 years thinking about him. And I I didn't feel that I did know him or could know him, partly because he when he came to write his memoirs, he fictionalized his own experience and he laid down, I think for reasons of private amusement, a number of false trails. I felt I understood some aspects of him and other parts of his life remained completely mysterious. Hence the, the real life, the, the title's a kind of provocation, but it's also an admission of defeat, I think, that you can never get to that point where you've, you've sorted everything out and you know 
the other person, the biographical subject completely. To undertake a biography of this man, it feels to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like you are documenting the lives of many people just because he had so many different aspects to him, the composition, the literature, the, the critiques, the actual books themselves, the nonfiction books. It just feels feels like he did so many different things. The screenplays, I mean, he was all over the place. Burgess was many people. And among other things, he was a musician, he was a composer, and he was a critic, uh, playwright, poet, etc. I think it would be an unusual reader who who was equipped to understand all of these aspects of his personality and his creativity. But on a very elementary level, he also kept changing his name. He was born John Wilson, and he published books under that name and as Anthony Burgess and as Joseph Kell. There's a manuscript of a novel where he writes in persona as a woman called Josephine Kell. And I've just found out very recently when he was living in Malaysia, he was writing for a magazine there under two different Islamic names, pretending to be yet more different people. So in that sense, because he he quite enjoyed this taking on of multiple roles and different personalities, that makes him more difficult to approach because he, he never sits still. He says something to the effect that it would bore him to hold the same opinions on two consecutive days. And in that sense, he was somebody who, you know, he was constantly making himself up. And I think that that's important as a point about his biography and the life he chose to lead. This person called Anthony Burgess was, in a sense, a fictional construct. It was an identity that he put together for himself. Now, whether the original person called John Wilson went on existing simultaneously, I don't know. I'm not really equipped to say. But certainly this character called Burgess was the the public side of himself who he put forward for consumption in all kinds of forms, including TV and radio and newspapers. And, you know, it's it's the name of the person who who appears on the jackets of novels, I think it's very difficult to know. And he wanted it that way. And at the time when I wrote the biography, there were many things which were not yet visible. There was no archive you could go and visit other than the publisher's archive, which I got into, but the the university collections. I'd not read his letters. I'd not read his diaries. So I think in the, the years which have gone by since I wrote and published the book, the first edition of it, there's a lot more information that's become available. So at some point, I would like to go back to Burgess and to add detail to, to this um, completely fascinating but, but very enigmatic, enigmatic character. Well, it's not like he sat in an attic for his entire life writing. It, you mentioned Malaysia. I mean, he moved around so much, too. He did move around a lot. And after the period of his second marriage, he moved around more. He married his Italian translator, and they moved to Malta and Italy. They spent quite significant periods of time in the United States and Canada. And eventually, they bought a a number of properties in the south of France and a place in Monaco and a place in Switzerland. And he, he died in London. He had an apartment in London as well. I think that sense of somebody who is moving around a lot, perhaps reluctant to put down roots, was part of who Burgess was, certainly. But there's a positive side to this. He he enjoyed learning languages. So when he went to Russia or Malaysia or Italy or France, 
He spent the war in Gibraltar, which is Spanish speaking. I think he enjoyed that. He And he made that part of the texture of his work. His novels are genuinely international. There's a sense that he's always trying to push beyond the limits of English. And he's he's interested in what happens when English bumps up against other cultures and other languages. That's right from the beginning, his Malayan trilogy, which are the, the first three books that he published as Anthony Burgess. I think that's a consistent subject of his his work, is, is the whole subject of translation, linguistic translation, but also translating yourself into a different culture. Well, that's always what makes uh, reading Clockwork Orange so much fun, the uh, introduction of the Russian and the English and whatever type of vernacular that they're using in this future time. A Clockwork Orange is a good example of Burgess as the linguist who wanted to invent a new way of narrating. It's not quite a language, it's a kind of slang that he puts together for that book based on his own knowledge of Russian He'd spent time the year he wrote the book, 1961, in what was Leningrad in the Soviet Union, the city now known as St. Petersburg again. It's characteristic of his work. In a sense, what he was trying to do in a very modified form was what James Joyce had done in Finnegan's Wake, which is to invent a new form of discourse which is informed by Joyce's knowledge of other languages. And Joyce, like Burgess, he often compared himself to Joyce. Joyce had lived outside Ireland for most of his adult life. And he spoke Italian very fluently. That was the language of his his household, uh, but also French and German and uh, other languages as well. Burgess often said that Finnegan's Wake, which he edited down to a shorter version, was his favourite book. And I think there are all kinds of interesting crossovers between Joyce's Finnegan's Wake and, for example, A Clockwork Orange, especially this ambition that Burgess and Joyce share which is to create a new kind of narrative vehicle, which is informed by their knowledge of other languages. So obviously, Clockwork Orange is probably his best known work, probably because of the Kubrick adaptation and even Andy Warhol taking a swing at it. What led to that novel? A Clockwork Orange was written, I think, quite quickly. It was a complete change of direction for Burgess, and his publisher was very unhappy about this. When the novel came in, when the novel was delivered, his publisher really took fright. And there was some debate within William Heinemann, which was his London publisher, about whether or not they should publish this book, partly because they were worried it was obscene, but also they were quite concerned by this. They thought they had a marketing problem because up until that point, Burgess was known as a writer of comic novels. He was a comedian. And the publisher felt rightly, I suppose, that they they understood how to sell his novels, which were quite quite light, quite funny, linguistically very lively. But fundamentally, they thought he had, he'd let them down and he'd let his readership down by writing something else, this futuristic dystopia about juvenile delinquents, as he called them. You can see from the publisher's files that there's quite a lively debate about should we publish this novel is there a risk of legal action? If we do publish it, should we ask Burgess to take on yet another new name so that if it's a failure, we can pretend it never happened and he can go back to writing his light comic novels, which everyone enjoys so much? And in a sense, they were right because the, the novel was a failure. When it was first published in Britain and in America, it sold very poorly. His previous novel, Devil of a State, had sold 15,000 copies on publication. 
And the Clockwork Orange sold something like 3,000. So everyone was disappointed, including Burgess, that this linguistic experiment had apparently failed. What were some of the events that actually informed the novel and what led to him taking that major turn from the comic to something more serious? Burgess, who'd been reviewing very widely, he was very struck by this revival of dystopian fiction in the late 1950s and early 1960s. George Orwell, who he claimed to have known a bit during the Second World War, I don't know if they did ever meet. He he got to know Orwell's wife, Sonia, quite well later on. Burdis had read 1984 when it was first published in the early 50s, and he was very struck by that, and it shows up in his diary when he first read it. And as he read more widely in the form, I think he wanted to try his hand at dystopia. And in fact, he wrote two dystopias around the same time. The first one is called The Wanting Seed. It's published the first year as a clockwork, uh, the same year as a clockwork orange. And these two books that he wrote and published in 1962 are very closely linked. So The Wanting Seed, which was finished first, but published second, is an alternative dystopia. And I think he always thought of them as a pair. They were together on the same book contract, along with a novel about Russia called Honey for the Bears. So I think this turn in his creative life is partly related to wanting to do something else, because he'd begun as a colonial novelist, late colonial novelist, documenting the transition of of Malaya from colonial rule to independence. And then he moved to Brunei, And he wrote about what it was like there. Then he came back to England and he was very interested by how England had changed. And I suppose his ambition for A Clockwork Orange and The Wanting Seed, this other novel that goes with it, was to move beyond the limits of his own experience and to explore a landscape that was completely fictional, unlike anything that he'd done before. So I think he was drawn to that speculative genre of fiction, which had previously been inhabited by people like Aldous Huxley with Brave New World and his other futuristic utopian novels, and Orwell in Animal Farm and 1984, and other writers as well, actually. There was a book by Constantine Fitzgibbon that he read just before he wrote A Clockwork Orange, which is called When the Kissing Had to Stop. He'd made it his business to read very widely in the genre of dystopian fiction and wanted to try his hand to see if he could do it. Does he inject himself into that novel? Is he the writer character? I think there's something of Burgess in Alex and A Clockwork Orange, not least because they're both very interested in music. The love of classical music that Alex has really comes from Burgess. He'd been very interested in classical orchestral music since he was a boy, and it it was part of his relationship with his father. His father died when he was 21, but when he was alive, they used to go to concerts quite regularly, once a week. They had a season ticket for the Halle Orchestra in Manchester, where he grew up. His father had worked as a musician. Before he was born, he was a piano player in the silent cinema. And later on, he played played piano in pubs and uh, and in the house. All of their houses had pianos in. That was his instrument. That was Burgess's first instrument as a musician. And he wrote a lot of piano music in the course of his life. The musical element came out of personal experience and enthusiasm to some extent. He had no children at the time he wrote the book, so he didn't know that much about 
teenagers, except because he'd worked as a school teacher, he'd encountered them in a professional way. Uh, and by all accounts, he was quite a good teacher. And yet the, the portrait of delinquent youth, teenagers in A Clockwork Orange is not especially sympathetic, maybe. And yet it's a first-person narration. I think it, it draws you in. Um, you're expected to sympathise with the, the voice of the, the hero, the narrator. And Burdis, when he was writing the book, was quite troubled by this. He wrote to uh, the Gillans, who were uh, some writer friends of his. He sent them a letter and he expressed the worry that Alex in the novel was becoming too sympathetic. He was meant to be a villain, but as the novel had progressed, it was written very quickly. It was mostly improvised at the typewriter, I think. And Burdis is worried that what he created by mistake, by accident, was a hero who was um, perhaps more engaging and more sympathetic than he was originally intended to be. What's the whole story between the missing chapter of A Clockwork Orange? If you look at the manuscript, Burgess writes the first 20 chapters and then thinks he's finished. And then using a different typewriter, and I think some weeks later, he decided to put on the 21st chapter, and the manuscript calls this an optional epilogue. And when he sent his novel off to his publishers in London and New York, they both saw this note at the head of chapter 21, the final chapter, which says, should we end here, meaning at the end of chapter 20, an optional epilogue follows. What happened was they they made two different decisions about that. Burgess himself was unwilling to make any decision. And according to the evidence on the manuscript, he wanted somebody else to decide. And the two sets of publishers in London and New York made opposite decisions. So the book was published in two different forms. Now, when Burgess wrote a screenplay for A Clockwork Orange in 1969, so before Kubrick, he followed the short version, the, as it were, American version. So he, he really ended the novel in the same place as Kubrick ends the film. We should say what happens in the final chapter. Okay, spoiler alert. Alex grows up and he decides to renounce violence and he says he wants to find a wife and have a child. And he looks forward to a life of bourgeois domesticity. And that's the ending that Kubrick rejected, saying it was completely inconsistent with the rest of the novel. And you can see in his own film script, the unpublished film script written by Burgess, he's rejecting that ending too. Now, later on, he told a different story. And he said that his, his ending uh, had been ignored and overlooked and rejected. But he, you can see he rejected it himself at one point. So the best thing you can say about the two different endings is that Burgess held different opinions about these endings at different times in his life. And towards the end of his life, he believed that the longer ending was better because maybe it was more affirmative, but he's very inconsistent in his talking about the structure of the book. And I don't believe one of the things he says, which is that he planned it as a coherent structure of 21 chapters. I think if you look at his notebooks, if you look at the manuscript, that theory falls apart. I think that's a, a theory that he developed very late in life, 25 years after he'd published the book. And by this time, he'd sold the manuscript to a university library in Canada, so he couldn't see it, and he'd forgotten what it said. Why the screenplay? Why had he adapted his own work? He was paid to write a screenplay 
there was a producer called Cy Litvinoff who bought the rights and sold them on to Warner Brothers eventually. But he'd been trying to get the film made for about five years before it was finally released. Various people had tried writing a script. There was one by Terry Southern who had done some work on Dr. Strangelove and that was rejected. It was submitted to the British Board of Film Censorship and they didn't like it. They said it was too violent. Uh, so Burgess was one of many writers who was asked to adapt The Clockwork Orange as a film. And uh, his screenplay, I think, was also doing the rounds and Kubrick read it and, and he also rejected it. He decided to make his own very faithful adaptation based on the novel. Yeah, I think Burgess is one of many people who had a go at adapting the novel. Kubrick's always had an interesting relationship with writers. What was his relationship with Burgess? Well, he didn't meet Burgess until after the film had been released. He sent a question about music. He wanted to know who'd written one of the songs that's in the novel. And Kubrick was in touch with Burgess's agent, Deborah Rogers, about the question of the endings. I think he, he wanted to know which ending Burgess regarded as definitive. But I'm not sure what answer went back. This is in the late 60s or early 70s. So Burgess didn't meet Kubrick until just before the film was released. He was invited to a screening of the film in London. And after that, they were working quite closely together through 1972 on the Napoleon film. And there's a series of letters that document that friendship. Kubrick was sending Burgess books, books about Napoleon and his wife, Josephine. And they were talking about the structure of a possible film and eventually Burgess wrote the first half of his Napoleon novel, which was published in 1974, and Kubrick read it and didn't really like it and wrote a very gracious letter in which he declined to um, take it forward and adapt it. He, he thought it wasn't right for him. In fact, in 1976, Kubrick asked Burgess if he could adapt the Schnitzler novella, uh, the dream novel, which became Eyes Wide Shut, and they corresponded about that as well. So they, they kept in touch post Clockwork Orange and were working on these two other projects, Napoleon and the Schnitzler. Eventually, I suppose, Kubrick was always talking to writers. I think he quite enjoyed their company. And he didn't have much to say about Burgess, except in 1987, when Full Metal Jacket came out, Kubrick gave an interview to a Canadian newspaper and they asked him about Burgess. And he said, oh, yeah, he's a great writer and I wish he would stop bitching about me. Um, so that, that's his side of the story. And I mentioned before, and I think he mentioned it as well, that Burgess had a career as a screenwriter. How did he get involved in that? It was quite early on in his career that he began to write films. I'm trying to remember which the first one was, and I, I can't know. He'd written a series of novels about a poet called Enderby, and there was interest in adapting that. There was another novel of his called The Doctor is Sick, and his novel, The Wanting Seed, he was trying to set up as a film project for Sophia Loren to star in it. And her husband, Carlo Ponti, wanted to produce it as an Italian film in the 1970s. But his big film project that never got made was a film about the life of Shakespeare, a musical. And Burgess wrote the script and he wrote the songs and he wrote the music. All of this was commissioned and it was in pre-production and they recorded the songs let's see warner brothers was the studio and then somebody left the studio 
and the project was abandoned. He'd also sold the film rights in his Shakespeare novel as a separate thing. This created trouble later on when he signed another contract with an Italian TV company to do A Life of Shakespeare. And his agent was warned that he was in danger of infringing his own copyright, really, because he'd he got these three Shakespeare projects in play. The, he'd sold the film rights in his novel and he wrote the musical version and then he was going to do another Life of Shakespeare for Italian TV. So he, he was removed from that project, unfortunately. But he carried on to the end of his life. He, he wrote loads of screenplays. Many of them were not produced. His most successful works, it wasn't film, it was TV. He did the script for Burt Lancaster, the Moses the Lawgiver, which I can remember being on, on TV in the 70s. And the Franco Zeffirelli production of Jesus of Nazareth was also, that was a Burgess script. I suppose those were the most successful projects, but there were loads of others with some quite big name directors as well who wanted him to, to write scripts for them. So he was kept continuously busy um, for ooh, about 30 years writing film and TV, and the majority of that work never went into production, which is a shame. I mean, you'd think there could have been more novels. He didn't mind. He got paid. But a lot of this work was, I suppose, wasted labor. There was a very good TV series about Freud that he wrote for a Canadian producer, and eventually he adapted it as a novel. It's part of the End of the World News, which is is one of three narratives in that book. I mean, his work in in film is very extensive and almost invisible. Can you tell me about A Clockwork Orange, A Play With Music? The Play With Music was an adaptation that Burgess made in the mid-80s, I think 1986, and it was published the following year. And this was really taking advantage of the fact that Kubrick had suppressed the Clockwork Orange film in the United Kingdom. And because it couldn't be shown, there was lots of interest in it. And I can remember the the band, which persisted right up until the end of Kubrick's life. The reason he gave Kubrick was that he said he'd received death threats. Some pretty sinister people had been calling at his house and threatening his family. And he was advised by the police in England to withdraw the film. And, and he did that, I think, really because he wanted to protect his family. I mean, he must have lost a substantial amount of money by doing that. But that was his decision. And once he'd taken that decision, he wasn't going to back down. So to the end of his life, the the ban on the film being screened um, persisted, and it was never released on VHS until after his death. So there was a kind of vacuum, and Burdis inserted himself. He saw an opportunity because he got the stage rights. He thought, why not write a play? And because I write music, I'll do some songs and turn it into a a sort of West End potential Broadway musical. So that's what he did. And it was produced in his lifetime uh, in quite a few places. The first production, I think, was in Germany. And there was another production in Scotland. And there was a very big production in London, which was put on by the Royal Shakespeare Company, a director called Ron Daniels. And I can't remember the name of the actor, but the the guy who's in Quadrophenia, the actor was called Phil Daniels, who played Alex on the stage for the Royal Shakespeare Company in 1990. Uh, But the music was not by Burgess. They they wouldn't use his music. They commissioned uh, Bono and The Edge from U2 to write a new score. And Burgess refused to attend the production. He was in London and he wouldn't go 
because he didn't want to um, listen to somebody else's music. So that was the, the story of the play with music. Kubrick appears in the text of the play. A man with a beard like Kubrick comes on at the end of the play, playing, singing in the rain on the trumpet, and he's kicked off the stage by the other actors. Uh, and that's a stage direction. I don't think that's ever been implemented in any production of the play. But it's a kind of joke, obviously. What it tells us is that Burgess wanted to assert his authorship over this thing called A Clockwork Orange by reworking it um, into this very strange musical. I'm not sure the musical makes sense if you haven't seen the film, because it's also very short, and it leaves out a number of scenes from the book. But it's interesting. I mean, if, if you're interested in the film, then it's worth, um, you know, kind of reading or ideally seeing the musical in a theatre because it's a completely different adaptation from Kubrick with a different ending, yet another ending. I won't say what the ending is, but, but there's another alternative conclusion that Burgess puts onto the play. What's your favourite Burgess work? It's hard to say with Burgess because he wrote so much. If I wanted to identify five or six really good works. I mean, most people know A Clockwork Orange. If you want to move beyond that, then his Shakespeare novel is really good. That's a a good place to to go next because it's written in a very rich Shakespearean language. He'd studied very hard to get the voice right for that novel. It's a masterpiece, really. There's also the Enderby novels. These novels about a poet who's a a kind of um, social misfit, but he writes this amazing poetry. Um, though the circumstances of his life are very disappointing to to him and everybody else. And uh, he has a breakdown and they try and persuade him to renounce poetry, but he won't. He is he's this figure of the artist who, like Shakespeare or John Keats or Christopher Marlowe or any of Burtis's other fictional heroes, he, he wants to create things. Earthly Powers, which is his longest novel, is a, a brilliant... It's like The Godfather. It's this kind of um, epic family saga which takes place all over Europe and America and then everyone goes to Australia and they go to Africa and it's the history of the 20th century experienced through uh, two very strong characters there's a writer called Kenneth Toomey who's like Somerset Maugham and his brother-in-law who becomes the Pope and it's really about their sort of relationship Toomey doesn't believe in God and the Pope goes around driving out demons and he believes that evil is a real presence in the world. I mean, that's a great novel. I suppose all of this underlines the point that A Clockwork Orange is very unlike most of Burtis's other novels. It's probably his most violent novel, but he wasn't a violent person. He was somebody who was very interested in language and culture and music. Uh, In many ways, he's a very civilised writer. He's also a comic writer and people forget that if they only know A Clockwork Orange. Right at the end of his life, he decided to write a novel in poetry. Uh, And this was published just after he died. Um, That novel is called Burn, B-Y-R-N-E, which is the name of the the central character. That, I think, is, it's neglected. Partly, I think, people are put off because it's it's written in verse. But again, it's it's an example of Burtis' great versatility. His Napoleon novel that he wrote for Kubrick is still around, and and that I'd recommend as well. I'm amazed. I've been to the uh, Anthony Burgess website quite often lately, and you put up new stuff all the time. It feels like there's still quite a lively discussion of Burgess and his work. I love it. Well, the Burgess Foundation in Manchester is 
still in the process of, of opening boxes and, and cataloging its papers. There's also a very big audio collection and there's a big, let's see, there, there's a photograph collection. And it, it's a complicated story. And there, there is still new material coming to light almost every day. And one of the very good things about the, the foundation's existence is that people who knew Burgess or had some family connection with him have been donating material. So we've found out a lot about his music. For example, people have contacted the foundation and sent in music that was written for their parents or here's a Christmas carol or a poem that Burgess wrote for me. I think we haven't seen the last of him yet or got to the end of the story. I think that there's a lot we still don't know. And part of the, the process is obviously cataloguing the archive. But also, I mean, I'm really keen that people should, should read more and, and think about his other books beyond A Clockwork Orange. It's a great place to start. And it then opens a window onto this much bigger creative world. And he's got quite a lot in common with Kubrick in the sense that Kubrick never made the same film twice. Generically, each of his, each of his films is very different. And the same is true of Burgess. He's a very versatile writer. And I think it would have bored him to just go on typing out the same stuff. So with every novel, he finds a different way of narrating or a different style or a different voice or a different language. And that's part of my excitement in reading him, which I think is shared by a lot of writers, is he's so unexpected. Somebody once said, reviewing Burgess, that if you looked at the first half of one of his sentences, you wouldn't know how it was going to end. Whereas with most writers, you, you could predict the second half of the sentence from the first half of the sentence. And maybe that's his musical background coming into play at all as well, wanting to, to surprise the reader. One of the things he says about his writing is that it was designed to be read aloud. It was a kind of music that he was writing on the page. And I think that's quite important. As we've got more audio books, you can see how that works. Some of the performances are very good, especially of his novel, Earthly Powers, for example. There was a brilliant actor called John Sessions who's recorded all four volumes of the Enderby sequence, the Enderby novels. And th these are really good performances, you know, as good as probably, you know, Burgess might have delivered himself. That aspect of his work is also very interesting that, that he's, as we started off by saying, he's lots of different people. So when he enters into character, gets his characters moving around, there's a lot of range and variety there, which as a reader, you know, that's always interesting, isn't it? Well, Professor Biswell, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. It's a pleasure. Really good to talk to you.
right, we are back and we are talking about A Clockwork Orange. And I wasn't aware, Rob, that there was actually a sequel written. And I don't think I talked to Mr. Bissell about that nearly as much as I should have. There was a article that I saw, it was maybe a week or so before uh, our recording here, that they had come across in Italy where Burgess had lived for a while, a manuscript for a sequel, and then all of that material, he had other writing jobs to get paid for. So it all got collected. No, the, the, the story said that it was left in the house and someone found it and then they mailed it off to the, uh, the Burgess archive and someone sifted through it and was able to put together, okay, here's sort of the broad kind of outline, which to me kind of seems like Burgess was doing uh, with this possible sequel kind of what uh, Huxley did with um, Brave New World Revisited, where Brave New World is the fiction piece and Brave New World Revisited is going, okay, in the 20 years since I've written this thing, this is what's happened. Here's kind of a nonfiction look at the world I created, the sourcing and what we could look as the possible peril, you know, the, the perils of such a thing that I was trying to get you to think about. I was confused because Burgess also wrote a book called A Clockwork Testament, which is part of his series of this uh, character named Enderby. And Enderby is not a very fun character at all. And again, I listened to that one and the narrator of that one, I was just like, oh, my God, dude take a rest. It was just a little too intense, but that has very, very fleeting ties to clockwork. Basically Enderby pretty close to the beginning of the novel. He meets up with the director and he ends up pitching a screenplay idea for an adaptation of this poem about these nuns during wartime. And he writes the screenplay. And then of course the movie ends up completely different than the screenplay. And at one point in the movie that's within the book, there's a rape of four nuns and then a, a nun gets raped in real life and they blame the movie. So there's a major controversy about that. So it's basically his commentary about how there were quote unquote copycat crimes from a clockwork orange and that it was so controversial because of that, that People were saying, oh, I did it because I saw it in the movies. It was very um, – I saw a nice article comparing Clockwork Orange with Natural Born Killers, you know, these kind of like ultraviolet films that, quote-unquote, inspired real crimes afterwards. There's the studies and all that kind of stuff. Basically, if you're going to commit a crime, you're going to commit a crime. If you're going to be inspired by a movie, pick something better. Both of those things, like you were talking about there, Clockwork Orange and Natural Born Killers, it's one of those things that I've often said is that for those who don't understand it – they often see satire as documentary. It's not prescriptive. It's satire. It's supposed to be elevated reality to get you to look at something through a different perspective. It's not saying that this is a good idea. I would include Fight Club in that as well. Fight Club is in, dragged into this uh, discussion a lot. As, and uh, even today, it's not like a thing from the past. Lots of people today have a, have a reading about how it's a fascist movie. And it's certainly a movie about fascism. But I'd argue that it's very critical of it. But lots of people to this day are very convinced that it's a fascist recruitment video and uh, all, all that kind of stuff. Kubrick had it removed from screens in the UK, still remained in the US. I didn't know or didn't realize some of the history of the censorship around the rest of the world. And especially when it came to Spain, that it was kept out of theaters. I mean, it was still during the Franco regime. Franco was in power until, what, 76 or something. 
I had always wondered about Murder in a Blue World, the Aloy de la Iglesia film, and I didn't know that that was made to kind of fill that gap, that there was no Clockwork Orange in Spain, so this filmmaker, who I really like uh, a lot of his stuff, that he ended up making a film that was very inspired by Clockwork Orange and used that, and then to cast Sue Lyon, who played... Lolita in Kubrick's version. And there's even a point in the film where I think she kills somebody and this hand drops down and it falls onto a copy of Lolita. I was like, Oh, that's kind of nice, but she's actually reading a copy of it. And then they name checks, name check Kubrick in the movie. And he's, he, there's an image of him in there and they talk about clockwork orange on the TV as if it's a, a news story. So there's all of this. It is a really odd movie for me to watch through the lens of clockwork orange and go, Okay. Uh, t- to me, it sort of seems like someone took the tea bag and after about trying to make four cups of tea with it, tried to make another one. So it's like, it's got clockwork orange in it. It's like, yeah, but it's like very little. The gang looks kind of like bikers. And I know that what they were trying to do there to try and replay part of that kind of, you know, singing in the rain scene a little bit uh, in a different manner. But that thing, I don't know. It reminded me of something like, what was it? Is it, um, is it motorcycle? Or what is it? The the one with the gang of motorcycle guys, you know what I'm talking about? It it had more of a feeling of that when it came to that gang. And then there was this whole kind of thing with Sue Lyon. Uh, I don't know if we want to spoil it or not with, with her that felt like a Giallo film. It felt like, uh, like, Arge- so like Argento, which, you know, I love Argento. I mean, if you listen to the show, you know that. So, I mean, to me, it's this odd mashup. Yeah, her putting on those disguises. And at one point she puts on this short hair wig and basically is, is going in drag as a man. And there's a, if I am was reading this, right, it's a gay character. And he's like, Oh, you know, I really want to sleep with you, even though you're a woman. And she basically talk about conversion therapy. She converts him basically to heterosexuality. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating film and, and Cauldron films is bringing it out on Blu-ray. I'm curious to see what they put with it. Yeah, well, it is fascist Spain, so they do have, you know, they had some pretty heavy censorship, and, you know, you think, like, the Hays Code was bad. You know, these guys probably had to work with a lot of really weird, well, you got to put this in there, and you can't make fun of the church, and you can't, you know, homosexuals can't be viewed as, you know, decent people. Nobody expects the Spanish censors. The gang, they reminded me more, even, I I love you name-checking motorcycle they reminded me more of like the guys from fahrenheit 451 running around they reminded me of the firemen for some reason maybe it was the helmets or something and yeah that was bizarre and it feels like they are in their own movie versus sue lion and her movie and then occasionally they cross paths yeah that was the thing when i was watching i'm like how what's the connection between these two it's almost like someone shot two different films and then go okay they gotta blend up at some point Robert Mitchum's son, who's in here, looks like, I, I put down in the notes, looks like a young George Papard for some reason to me. I get this kind of, you know, George Papard vibe. Yeah, he definitely didn't look as much like Robert Mitchum as other actors. But yeah, there's a great documentary that just came out recently uh, called The, for what is it, The Forbidden Orange? Or A Forbidden Orange, and it's playing on HBO Max as we record this. It's kind of funny because the guy who made that also made a documentary about Erbato, which I've been wanting to see a subtitle version of that forever. He also made one about, I think about 2001, and he seems to have a gig working at TCM over in Spain. And it's one of these where it's like, 
dude, give me a call because it feels like we're very much on the same page with a lot of this stuff. And he's making this great content. And I thought that a forbidden orange was put together very well. And I really like the interviews with the Spanish people from the time talking about what it was like trying to see this movie and the lengths that they went to to see Clockwork Orange, these, you know, day trips to France to see, <laughs> to see the film. And, uh, when it finally showed in Spain in what 76 or whatever. And, and when they talk about how there was a bomb threat against the theater and the guy's like, you know what? We're okay. And just kept playing the film. He wouldn't break. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was a great documentary. I thought it was really fascinating about this little film festival that started in, I think, the 50s. And originally it was a religious film festival. And then it's like, well, there's not enough decent religious films. So it's going to be like just humanity in general film festival. And then, of course, they show Buñuel films, which upset the Spanish sensibilities. And it's in this town. Like, like to me, it's fascinating that I guess you could say it's a university town, maybe like Ann Arbor, but it seems like it's much more like a backwater too at the same time where it's much more um, conservative. So you've got this liberal element and you have this conservative element and they kind of battle each other. And then um, kind of the Franco government using this film festival in a way to their own ends uh, when it comes to, okay, well, have we cracked down too much on the censorship? Can they handle this? And this sort of like how people that have been viewing censored material for so long, they get, sort of trained to think a certain way. And I thought that was really interesting in those, in those interviews. So I, I think it's a fascinating documentary on so many levels. And, um, and, and then there's another uh, piece in there about um, uh, when they got the deal to show it, then they're like, Oh, we'll send the print back because, you know, we need to make sure the print is up to snuff and the theater is up to snuff that you can show this. And Kubrick's like, no, not in that theater. That theater can't handle it. And I'm, I'm reminded of at the time because I don't know if it was the first Star Wars film, but it was definitely the second one. It was Empire that Lucas was really able to start pushing, like, you need to align these theaters, sound, vision, like all of this stuff. And this becomes the basis for THX. This becomes the basis for modern film going as we know it. But the fact that he had enough juice to be able to do that, I thought was was kind of amazing at the time. The only other person that I knew of in the modern context was when I did the stupid little vampire film. The guy who was my master mixer on that was friends with a guy by the name of Larry Blake. And Larry Blake was the master mixer. I don't know if he still is uh, for uh, Soderbergh's early work. He's down in New Orleans and he would get paid by the studio to go around to select markets and check certain theaters where they were going to open Soderbergh film and align that theater audio visual, like make sure the projectors and everything were up to snuff. And that was the only time I had ever heard in recent memory of a filmmaker that had that kind of juice until you get to like Christopher Nolan or Tarantino going, no, you're going to show this in 70 millimeter and, and this is the way it's going to be done. So I, I think it's really, really interesting. I seem to remember in a Kubrick exhibition, they have like a letter from Kubrick to projectionists that was circulated around 2001, the movie, not the year, making, you know, with, with I think he was probably yeah, the only filmmaker who had specific instructions for projectionists, that, that he had enough juice to do it and that he was as big as big of a, of a perfectionist to do it. And even before that time, it was like, that really wasn't that big of an issue. I mean, uh, you know, in Psycho, it was like, oh, you know, we won't seat you if you're late. In 1961, that was considered radical. 
It was like, cause people just walked into movies and were like, eh, whatever, it's a movie. And these guys are like, no, this is, this is a real deal. Like, I, I think they talk about in the documentary, they're like, if he didn't like the colors of the walls or something, because it clashed with the visual sensibility of the film, he wouldn't show up there. That's so weird. <laughs> That's taking it a step too far. The lights are off. <laughs> well, you know, there's ambient reflection, right? I don't think they had white walls on any of them. I also really loved, I really dug the documentary. And uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff in it. First of all, Ma- Malcolm McDowell's narrating it. And it's sort of a weird narration because part of it, he's just the narrator. Then he start, then he goes into first person and says, when I played Alex, this and that. And he talks about uh, Murder in the Blue World. He says, um, all of a sudden, Alex DeLarge had a woman's face, I think is how he puts it in the movie. It's so weird. Uh, and actually, the, the, the other thing that you guys didn't mention that was really interesting about that doc is actually not the interviews with the people who watched it in the 70s, but, but with the young people. At the end of the movie, at the end of the doc, he screens it for young people who are in, in sort of university students who've never seen it. And their, their, their reactions pretty much uh, surprised me, I gotta say. I was used to this kind of attitude of, oh, this movie was uh, groundbreaking in the early 70s, but to, it's tame by today's standards, that kind of thing. And they said the opposite. They said um, they were really shocked and really disturbed. And they said that they don't think, a lot of them, I think, said it, that they don't think this movie could have been made today. I wonder if you guys agree with it, it because it seems like we're in an age that they'll throw anything and they'll do anything. But it, it attests to the power of this guy's filmmaking that the, the debate about violence is so immediate and so shocking today as well. When we've gone through the era of things like Hostel and Saw and things like that, like really heavy horror stuff like that. Yeah, you know, that stuff. But. But this has it kind of reminds me of that line from uh, Videodrome where it's like it has a philosophy and that's the dangerous thing. It's not the images so much. It's the it's the philosophy that's in it and the way that it's presented. It's it is in the edit. It is in the use of music. It is in that way. It's not about like, you know, vivisections and, you know, Grey's Anatomy kind of anatomy, you know, look at the interior in that way, like literally like scalpel someone open and pull all their guts out he's doing that to you but he's making you do it in your head and he's putting it connected to this philosophy that and that's the disturbing thing that's the thing that i think still gives it its power 50 years on yeah i don't necessarily buy the idea of you couldn't make this film today feels like haneke could make this film today it feels like tom six would like to make this film today but doesn't have the talent for it it just feels like yeah this movie could still happen I don't, I don't think it would have the influence or the punch that it did in 1971, but it might. I mean, it could be a sensation as well. Who knows? In many ways, I would see funny games as a spiritual heir to this in some way. The, and, and I haven't seen the American remake. I, f- I feel there's no need for me to watch that one. I'd rather just watch the original. But basically, that idea of the voyeur that I'm going to make you watch this. I want you to squirm. I want to see how long you're going to sit here. Henneke was even like the fact that people sit all the way through that film. I failed. They should get up and leave. And he's like, I actually want them to, to a certain extent. So there's this push pull. I guess I win because I made a, made a point of never seeing it. I win, Michael Henneke. I win. But much the same way, it is this, it, it's a feeling. Like there's this, there's scenes in funny games that are harrowing, but they're not harrowing because of the body terror. 
they're harrowing because of the psychological terror, because of the stakes that just keep getting built up. And, and I think about it and I'm just like, yeah, woof. That's probably one of the few, even though that was done in the late, you know, 25 years ago now, almost, that's one of the more recent films that I could go. Yeah. That, that feels like it sits on the same shelf next to this. So one of the things that I watched for this as well was the pre-make of the film, basically the earlier adaptation of, and I, I hate even using that word. It's Andy Warhol trying to do a clockwork orange and Andy Warhol, God bless him because Andy Warhol is an inspiration to me. Cause if somebody that talentless could get that famous, I mean, look what I could do. I, I can't even imagine it because my God, his movies were terrible. Vinyl, the 1964 adaptation of Clockwork Orange is no exception to that. It is about an hour long. It is all shot from one camera angle and you have all of these actors crammed into one little space. There's moments during the middle of the film where they'll have the somebody just saying what the credits of the movie are. And then again, towards the end, they'll say more credits. And it's basically this kind of hunky guy like Warhol would like. He is verbally berating a guy. It's basically one of the scenes that wasn't in the film that was in the book, not in Kubrick's film, I should say, is this scene. And apparently McDowell says that they shot this, and I don't know if I believe him or not. It's a guy coming out of a biblio, basically a library, and they take all of his books and they rip up all of his books and scatter them into the air. And he says that they shot that, but then the guy couldn't come back for, you know, I talked about the ascent and descent, and he couldn't come back for the descent scene. I'm like, well, why wouldn't you would film those at the same time, right? You wouldn't just like leave six weeks between those two things. And why wouldn't Kubrick recast that if it was a crucial part? But Whatever. Vinyl takes that biblio scene and uses that, though I don't think there are are there books? I mean the whole thing is just oh it just it melts my brain because there's all of this talking and talking and talking. Excuse me, sir. Pardon me, sir. Sorry, I see you have some books in your hands, sir. It is uncommon to see someone who still knows how to read, sir. May I read your books, sir? This sir's books, Victor. I'm sorry, boys. I'm in a hurry. I'll read this sir's books. Haven't you had the deep, deep respect for them who can read, scum baby? Yeah. You, you two boys should be home in bed. And it kind of is reminiscent of Burgess's book. And then all of a sudden we just start dancing to Martha and the Vandellas. Then they keep dancing for the longest time. And it's like, I watched this at one and a half times speed and it was still so long and so fucking boring. It just killed me. I I was joking before we started. uh, We had a small discussion among ourselves about this um, Warhol film and I have not seen it. I didn't have time to watch it before the show. But I was reminded of, and sadly he passed recently, uh, the great Bob Downey, who was on with us on Putney Swope episode. And when we talked about underground film in the 60s in New York, he's like, oh, God, I had to sit through those Warhol films. And it's it it just lacks a it lacks a sense of humor. I mean, to me, when it comes to Warhol films, the better ones are the Paul Morris. Oh, God, yes. later the stuff that he was doing in this period that's interesting is is not narrative 
or even the extended stuff like sleep or empire or things like that. I, I understand why they're important from an art history standpoint, but the, the most interesting ones, which are on showcase in the Velvet Underground documentary, if you haven't seen that yet, you should, is the screen tests where Warhol would take someone and he would just put a camera on them and run out a whole mag on them. And he really believed that when you force someone to just sit there and stare into a camera, eventually the real them will come out. And I think that that was one of the best things that I loved about going to the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. If you've never gone, it's it's very interesting uh, visit. There's a whole room where you can go through all of these um, short, you know, two minute, three minute uh, screen tests of various people, including people that have been on the show, like Mary Warnoff, who, of course, was part of that factory scene at that time. I think Warhol's films are to be watched mostly in a museum next to a guard behind a velvet rope. I don't think you're supposed to sit down and watch them. Yeah, I can kind of agree with that. I mean, it was interesting that it was such an influence, that Burgess's book was such an influence at that time that we had an adaptation two years afterwards. It was just a weird, weird way of doing it. That, you know, like I said, it's the static camera. It's an hour and nine minutes. At some point, the film has to run out and they switch that. But I wasn't able to pay attention that much just because it it challenges you to watch this. Like, watch this if you dare, because I'm going to put you to fucking sleep watching this. I think we had the same conversation years ago that, you know, a well-paced film and a well-shot film it can be three and a half hours long and it doesn't feel like it. But one that's poorly paced that's an hour long feels like three and a half hours. Totally. Oh, I take it back. There is a, a switch in camera angles at one point when they are putting a gimp mask and tying up. I guess maybe it's the Alex character. It could be one of his droogs. I don't know. So I, I apologize for being incorrect about that. I have to say a much more interesting film for me was A Clockwork Orgy. Which sounds like one of the titles that uh, Jeff Bridges talks about in The Fisher King. You know, here, give him this. You know, uh, Ordinary Peephole. There you go. Watch that. Ladies and gentlemen, on this stage, we have the object herself. Inmate number 17895. As you can see, she is fit and well endowed. World anyway. And what's so stinking about it? From now on, you'll be referred to as 17895. It is your duty to memorize that number. Yes, sir. You have been convicted of wanton sexual encounters. I was seduced by the treachery of others. It was my traitor's truth. They dragged me into it. No, sir. Does that mean you need to be de sex 17895? I can't take anymore. I've learned me less than one, sir. You needn't go any further. Tomorrow we send her into the world with confidence.
So that is uh, Alexa and her droogs, and they go around and commit crimes. They are, you know, at the Corova Milk Bar, very low rent version of a Corova Milk Bar, but they have mannequins on either side. It's not the sculptures, you know, any of that. And they just go around and, um, you know, they, the tramp, let's say the tramp is a lot younger, but they end up having sex with him. There's a lot of giving these people sexual pleasure, which is weird. It's different than Banana Mechanica, which is more, those are male droogs going around raping people. Remove all the subtext, remove all the story. It's just guys going around raping women, having sex with women. I think Clockwork Orgy could have worked better, but it would have been a completely different context if it was like Doms, I guess, or something. Like it had to be like going and blowing the uh, the bum uh, is, yay, you know, he got a blowjob. You know, those ladies are very nice. I think the equivalent would have been, uh, you know, we're going to bend you over and do some, you know, nastiness to you uh, and no we don't have any lube are we analyzing clockwork orgy with a straight face a little right bit now? yeah there yeah. you go yes, yes. sure are i we? mean <laughs> okay just making just checking there's still the priest's stuff going on there's her in a straight jacket but the priest i don't think he necessarily takes advantage of her but yeah and there's the, the there's their version of the ludovico technique um, there's the writer, uh, who is in a wheelchair towards the end and he ends up putting her in a room and showing her very, the same videos that the priest had showed her. And I don't know if it's like, don't be a lesbian. Cause there's a lot of lesbian sex in this or not, but yeah. So it, it it's weird how it follows the beats and it follows the beats a lot, a lot better than banana mechanica though. As far as I know, there's no English version of banana mechanica around it's only in italian but there's not a lot of dialogue either so i think you're okay with that clockwork orgy they basically just opened clockwork orange script and then just rewrote it the opening in the milk bar there's certain i mean even the thing with the beggar it's like oh it's a horrible world and that i mean it's like somebody took it and then they said you know just change every fourth word so that way we don't get you know sued by warner brothers you know what i'm convinced it is a horrible world if we're going to talk about derivative works from A Clockwork Orange, I think um, the only one that comes to mind seriously is the video for uh, Blur's The Universal, directed by Jonathan Glazer. Very obviously a takeoff on uh, on this movie, and it's about four minutes long. It, ha- it says something. It's a good director. It's a good director with something to say. Um, I'd recommend everybody to check that one out and spend spend four minutes. Yeah, Rob, you sent me a whole article about musicians that were inspired by A Clockwork Orange, and of course, you know, we talked a little bit to um, Mr. Bissell about the musical versions of A Clockwork Orange and Bono and the Edge did some stuff for that. So there's, I guess, I don't know if it was before the Spider-Man musical, but definitely the Clockwork Orange musical they did music for as well. And I want to say there's at least one other music video that is very inspired by it. And of course, like, I can't remember if it was Rihanna uh, there was a singer who was doing the whole like one eye with the false eyelashes. And so, yeah, I mean, that imagery just runs throughout so much of pop culture. The thing that's interesting about Clockwork Orange when it was released in 71 was that was the start of glam. 1971, if you look up T-Rex on Top of the Pops, that was the first time that someone had gone on TV, a rock musician with eye makeup on, with Mark Bolan. So there is this connection between when Clockwork Orange is released and glam, which eventually morphs into, you know, punk and 
and to a certain extent, Clockwork Orange has this, like, if, if you look throughout the history of sort of punk imagery and things like that, a lot of that is borrowed. Uh, I think a lot of it is because um, Alex and the Droogs kind of represent this, you know, no future, late 70s, Thatcherite England, you know, uh, attitude. Um, but he was kind of ahead of the curve, I mean, in some way. So so there's a lot of that interconnection. And I think in that one that I sent you from, I think it was NME, uh, it listed and was probably the first reference that someone had made to Clockwork Orange in um, the movie or the book in music was Bowie. And they talked about how it was in uh, Ziggy Stardust and then also in Black Star towards the end of his career as well. Yeah, and then, of course, we were talking that uh, so many of the industrial bands of the 80s and early 90s were just sampling like crazy. And I mean, remember even, um, was it Sig Sig Sputnik um, with their song that was in, to go all the way back to the beginning of this episode, that was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. They've got Alex going, righty right? So many samples of these things. And then just all over the pop culture. I mean, the thing that's interesting to me is that you could make a clockwork orgy because enough people will have either seen it or if they haven't seen it, they at least know the imagery. They at least know the concepts of clockwork orange so much so that I remember Bart Simpson, you know, on the Simpsons dressed in the bowler hat and the, you know, the eyelashes. I didn't realize how big that image was, but it was mentioned in the Spanish doc, like two or three of the interviewees remembered Bart Simpson with the eyelash. So I guess it stuck. I can see Bart, you know, even though he, he was probably your age, Rob, when he saw the movie for the first time. Yeah, because he doesn't age. He's always nine on the show. But yeah, I can see him kind of being influenced by that. You know, obviously less violence and no sex. But then um, you were mentioning punk. And I mean, yeah, I can imagine that this film uh, influenced the punk movement like crazy. And to a certain extent, I mean, I talked about sort of Wendy Carlos and Kraftwerk. I mean, the other thing that kind of runs in the background here is, you know, industrial music and the idea of this sort of depleted industrial society. And and obviously Throbbing Gristle, the precursor to Gristle was around this time when they were doing the art installations. So it's like all of this kind of this mash of what was going on in England between you know, sort of the, the end of empire, deindustrialization, the rise of Thatcher, like all of that stuff. Like there's a reason why this this film is held on in our consciousness for so long. Plus, at the same time, it was banned for, you know, until 2001. You literally couldn't get a, a legal copy in the UK. So it was all um, bootlegs. It's so interesting that Kubrick was the person behind the shelving of the movie in the UK. I never realized that until just now. I think most people think that the movie was deemed too obscene and was put down by the authorities, and it's not the case. That it was the death threats, I think, that finally uh, pushed him into doing that, and just having weird people show up at his house and stuff, too, which is pretty damn scary. You know, one of these, like, oh, I have a message for you, like, those kind of folks. Like, you know, the movie really spoke to me. I mean, I think I told this story before on the, the podcast that when I was working at Blockbuster in Ann Arbor, there was a uh, person that lived in a group home, and he you know, the, the group home would visit Blockbuster and they would rent stuff. And he rented the same three movies every single time. And I don't remember what the other two were, but one of them was Clockwork Orange. So basically our copy of Clockwork Orange was always checked out because he just kept re-renting it every single time. And I don't know if that was because he was a huge fan or if he just wanted to keep it out of the hands of other people. But that was an interesting movie to have continuously checked out by a person that was living in a group home. 
You're reminding me of the time when a friend of mine showed me American Psycho and uh, it was the first and only time I'd ever seen it. And I had to stop it about in 45 minutes in or something because the guy was so into it and obviously really identifying with Patrick Bateman and like saying how awesome everything was on screen. And at some point I, I had to just like, listen, maybe we need to rethink our friendship because... Uh... Yeah. Again, not somebody <sighs> yeah. to emulate. The other thing that I was thinking about as you guys were talking about these other films and the influence, he had done this before with uh, Strange Love, with We'll Meet Again. And around that time, a little bit before that, was um, obviously Kenneth Anger in the use of ironic music, to use music in an ironic sense, to make commentary. And the idea of singing in the rain used in that way, the way that, you know, uh, we'll meet again at the end of Strange Love. But I really think that that use of that song in this film sets up not only two different things, but one is, is that as much as you love the Gene Kelly film, if you're enough of a film nerd, your head goes to Clockwork Orange first, much the way like Stuck in the Middle with You takes you in your head to Reservoir Dogs, if you hear it on the radio, you know, so there's that kind of element. But I don't, I mean, Mike, you're probably as versed in, in Yaniv as well. Can you think of any other filmmakers besides Kubrick in this period? And then, like I say, Anger in the Underground, who was using music in that way to make counterpoint, you know, and, and especially needle drops, you know, not score, but actual tunes that people would know. I was trying to think about the same thing after when the movie ended, but I didn't really come up with anything. Yeah, I think the one person who still does this today is Scorsese. And even all the way back to, you know, the big shave. And of course, with Mean Streets, like crazy using more modernish music to uh as that soundtrack i think he was one of the people that definitely helped push that forward he was definitely the heir to that and and i you know it's funny that you bring up the big shave because that was 67 so there's i i see more of a through line with anger in in that way but yeah i i can't think of any hollywood guys that were doing it in that way and now you can do it and you can get away with it all the time like people are like no, oh this, you're being funny by trend. yeah oh you're being funny by putting that song in the background now they do it with trailers too much when they take a familiar song, but they put Hans Zimmer boom, boom noises under it. And now it's, uh, oh my God, my eyes are open to the potential of this song. And it's like overdone. It's like the, the, the cliche, the 2020s cliche of, uh, whatever. Yeah. I like this song so much in the trailer. I'm looking at you, Suicide Squad. I like this song so much in the trailer that I'm going to have to put it into the movie now, even though this was only a trailer moment. But then you get other things like um, the use of uh, the immigrant song in Thor Ragnarok, where I'm just like, okay, this might be the best part of the movie. Using this needle drop here is perfect. And it's a great song, and it works super well with these visuals. Like I said, just thinking about it 50 years on, I mean, there's... It's one of a handful of films. I mean, it, he, Kubrick was definitely not a new Hollywood member. He didn't really come out of that. But this film sits squarely in that idea and in that philosophy and in that time. And that's the thing that I find so interesting. I mean, if you want to know more about why he kind of picked this, I think we talk a little bit of it on Eyes Wide Shut with Alison Castle, where she talks about, well, you know, he was going to do Napoleon, but Napoleon didn't happen for a confluence of reasons. And later that research was plowed into Barry Lyndon, but he was just like, I got to do something and I got to do it cheap. And, and this was a, a rather cheap film and quick film compared to, you know, the previous one that took him what three years, four years to, to 
develop and a lot of money. Yeah, it's amazing that this is Stanley Kubrick's low budget film. Yeah, there was an online, uh, there was a YouTube little documentary talking about it. They go, it would be like if Christopher Nolan followed up The Dark Knight by making Memento. I mean, Memento is still a very powerful film. I kind of like it better than a lot of the bigger budget things, especially fucking Tenant. But, you know, it's like, yeah, small budget, good idea. You know, that's, and that's what this film had was a really good idea. And we'll explore that. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. I'm not going to let a preacher and some dingling dames run our business. When organized crime hits their town. What did you have in mind, Tiger? These ladies hit back. Hey, and become the North Avenue Irregulars, who meet big-time crime head-on. Who would suspect a bunch of dingling dames? Nobody does it like the North Avenue Irregulars. From Walt Disney Productions, rated G. What these ladies do to organized crime is really criminal. That's right, we're going to lighten the mood a little bit next week as we talk about the North Avenue Irregulars. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Rob and Yaniv. Yaniv, what has been keeping you busy, sir? I'm just toiling away, translating for your friendly neighborhood streaming giant under an NDA. Do we have you to thank for the awful subtitles for the Squid Game? Uh, no comment. No, I had nothing to do with it. But that would only be in Hebrew. You read Hebrew now? Oh, no. That's, That's right. Yeah, you wouldn't know about the Hebrew subtitles of Squid Game. But if you see something wrong in the, in the subtitles for True Story with uh, Kevin Hart and Wesley Snipes, then I'm, I'm the address for those complaints. Okay. All right. I, I will start working on my hate mail right now. I know what I'll do. I'll do a, a whole series of YouTube videos. And Rob, what's going on with you, sir? Working on school and some other creative projects. I'm, I decided to um, bother people and kind of get the band back together. So after about 25 years of not doing anything in terms of like Xeroxine stuff, I've decided to uh, start doing that because I'm, I don't know, I'm just getting kind of tired of living life on the internet. And I'd rather just create things out of paper that might be more fun and interesting for me, even if people don't read them. So, so feel free to get in touch. Xerox machines still exist. That's a thing. a thing. That's right. Bring them back. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the Projection Booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over this stinking lawless world. <laughs> <laughs>